Hey, what's up? You're on the Empty Brass Podcast, and as always, I'm your host, CJ Boxrude. Before we get started today, I just want to quickly remind you that this podcast is sponsored, and it's sponsored by Uncana. An industry-leading veteran-owned CBD company, Uncana CBD products are formulated based on data collected primarily from veterans and first responders. They are a data-driven company owned and operated by veterans, working for the benefit of the communities. Make sure you check out more at www.uncana.com. That's U-N-C-A-N-N-A.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. Also, as always, it's sponsored by Mac Defense. Mac Defense specializes in building duty-grade handguns for armed professionals and the responsible armed civilians. They offer a top-tier product at a price point accessible to the working man. Their no-compromise approach, mixed with their expert craftsmanship, lead to a fine-tuned product with a focus on functionality. In an industry inundated with Gucci guns that fall on their face, they strive to build guns as good as they look in all conditions. From complete builds to modifying customer-supplied guns and components, they've got you covered. For more, visit MacDefenseIndustries.com. The more you think about something, the harder it becomes to ignore. If I mention recoil management or muzzle rise, for example, suddenly you've thought about it, right? See how Atlas Perfect Zero changes the recoil and muzzle rise conversation all together at atlasgunworks.com forward slash perfect zero. What's going on, everybody? You're on another episode of Empty Brass, and I'm your host, CJ Boxrude. On today's episode, uh, I'm really honored to have the guest that I do on. His name is Jeremiah Wilbur. We met through Instagram, uh, actually a mutual contact with uh, Uncana, and we will get to that in a second. Uh, but Jeremiah, thanks so much for being on with me today. Yeah, dude. Super stoked, man. So uh, just to kind of get me started here, uh, walk me a little bit through like your childhood, where you grew up, uh, and kind of leading up to the Army. All right. Um, so I uh, grew up in Montana. My mother is um, a Cinnaboyan Indian. My dad's just rad white mountain man. Okay. Um, That's awesome. They, I know, right? <laughs> um, the guy, my name, Jeremiah, honestly, honestly, from the movie Jeremiah Johnson. Like My parents just love that movie. And That's awesome. Kind of the story behind <laughs> it. So that's how I got my name. And then, um, so I lived in Montana, kind of all over Montana at first on Rocky Boy Indian Reservation. Uh, and then moved from Rocky Boy to uh, Great Falls and then to a small town called Ennis. And that's kind of where my, my dad's family, my grandparents and stuff lived. And then um, so kind of all over Montana until like junior high school. And then we moved to Las Vegas. Oh, cool. My dad was a, um, a, fl- a flight nurse. <clears throat> so he basically went from, you know, worked for like a small company in Montana to going down to Vegas. And he was the program director for like Mercy Air. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was, um, were you cool with that move or? At yeah. The time? I mean, it was kind of a culture shock at first, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think like one thing that helped me set it up is like, I have a, a bunch of family in San Diego. So a lot of times every summer from probably, you know, eight, nine or so I would go spend most of my summer in San Diego with my cousins. Okay. So being like, you know, around that kind of environment and it just, you know, surf culture and just, yeah. you know, in the mountains of San Diego, we go to like the sand dunes, riding three wheelers and stuff, um, things like that. So I think I was like already, you know, when you're a kid, it's, to me, it's just like, you're just trying to have fun with your homies, you know, you don't really <laughs> care like <laughs> yeah. where you are. Um, so it wasn't too bad. Uh, I didn't obviously, you know, like school change, whatever. We had moved around enough where like I was in school for a couple of years and then would go to another spot. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like anything out of the ordinary, okay. um, trying to look back on it. Like it wasn't like a big deal at all. Um, and then, uh, Las Vegas, I, I liked it. I thought it was a pretty cool place. Um, lots of like outdoor stuff to do. 
Um, I think people misconstrue Las Vegas with like just the casinos and stuff, yeah. you know. But like, yeah. there's a there's there's a ton of stuff to do in the outdoor environment you know um red rocks right there some of the, like the best climate on the planet is like right there outside of las vegas um those mountains i mean it's cool we we didn't i don't think we missed a beat like moving from montana to vegas we just happened to be in a bigger city okay. and we're still like every weekend you know like going hiking going to check out stuff whether it's in utah arizona like everything's everything is kind of around there you know sure it's yeah. kind of close to vegas so that didn't really change um and then when I was um, a senior in high school, um, you know, I, my daughter was born when I was a senior in high school. So I was kind of like, well, shit, I got to do something. <laughs> and uh, I always knew I wanted to be in the Army. Like, I always knew I was going to be a soldier um, since I was a little kid, you know? Really? Um, yeah, That's... like super little. Like, I was always, like, playing, you know, camel camel up and playing. My dad was in the military, too. So I think that kind of, like... Um, we always talked about it, you know, like he was just always saying, uh, he was always saying like airborne ranger stuff and like things like that. So it was always just kind of like part of, I think like my childhood growing up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I was kind of like, well, shit, I got to do something. And I looked at my dad at the time was in the national guard still. Okay. He, he had got out of the army and then went straight into the guard, you know, pay for schooling and things like that. And he was running, um, like he was like one of their flight surgeons, you know, in okay. the, at a um, Nevada National Guard. So I looked at like the college options and stuff, and like the money they give you, and I wasn't necessarily committed. I don't. I just don't think I really knew what I wanted to do. Sure. So I did like the um, where you at, you can start the army like while you're still in high school. Oh, like you go to basic delayed thing. entry or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So. I didn't go to basic between my junior and senior year, okay. but I was, I started in the national guard. Um, like once I found out like my girlfriend was pregnant. So like my junior into my junior year, I signed up. Um, and then there was basically, I had like three units I could choose from. One of them was like armor and one was an MP and the other one was like transportation or something. And my dad was like, you know, like you don't want to be on a tank, bro. Like it's a death <laughs> trap, like everything weighs 300 pounds, you know, I was like, okay. So I was like, well, I'll be an MP, you know, it's not a big deal. Okay. Um, so then graduated high school, went to um, basic training at AIT, Fort Leonard, Missouri as an MP. Um, once I was there, I was basically like, this is it. Like, I don't want to be National Guard, you know, like, yeah. I want to be, I want to be in active duty. So I graduated from basic and then I basically had like a seamless transition where um, I didn't have, like, I guess like the other kids that would go home for hometown recruiting, mm -hmm. like that time they would have like Christmas Exodus. I graduated like November or something right before uh, Thanksgiving. And then I was basically active duty, like change everything over and reporting to Fort Hood, Texas, like January 3rd. Okay. So I didn't have like a, you know, a break in service, like even though it looks a little bit like that. But at the they, end of it, it but was, they basically let you transition from the guard to yeah yeah duty. basically okay. like you know they cut me orders saying like like hey you know you're fulfilling your contract with the um, the guard is fine like as long as you go to active duty it's it's pretty easy okay. to do honestly uh, as long as the state lets you go and I think I think as long you know unless you're like a senior person or like a MOS it's like they, you know they don't have any of then maybe but for me you know I was a private I didn't have any, any rank at all you know and are we talking like, pre 9-11 or post 9 -11? pre 9-11 so okay. this is uh 1999 okay cool. so when I went to uh, basic and did all that and then um yeah I got stationed in Fort Hood Texas and um my first like you know I would say within like 
couple weeks of being there, it was like, oh, this dude's a PT stud. Like I kind of got like, just, I just, to me, I just worked hard and did what, you know, like old stars told me to do, you know? And, yeah. Um, you like spelled your name right. And yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, you kind of show up on time. Like it's not a big deal. Um, so I ended up doing uh, the Baton Death March when I was a private and I won that. And that was kind of like where I started. You won it? Yeah, I Damn. won as a private <laughs> in, in 2000. Um, so I think like that was like the start of my like, oh shit, like I'm a little bit, um, not to say I'm better than other people. But I like, like this. But like I was a little bit like, oh, the army's in my gym. Like I really like yeah. rucking and competing and um, just trying to be the best. Sure. And I always took pride in like, my team leader, he had came from Fort Bragg, and he was like this really high speed dude, um, E5, you know, like before like, you know, CIBs and all the other craziness, cause you know, pre 9-11 um, was like double stacked and like, okay. he went to pre-ranger and then they like took ranger school away from non you know, non-combat arm and Wessis, but he was just a high speed kid. Uh, went to Panama, went to like jungle warfare school and like as an MP was like pretty, um, I would say like, my team in general kind of had like this infantry based style of like training and what, where our mindset was at, you know? And I, I think that really helped me out having like a team leader like that and someone mentoring me and, and thinking it was cool to like, we'd go on long runs and like crush PT. And so he so, had a pretty big influence on you. That yeah. I would say, leader? yeah, I would say, yeah. Um, his name is Jason Powell. He ended up going to CAG, um, oh. like later on, uh, like I would say probably shit, maybe like, 10 years later okay maybe a little less than that about about the same time i went to selection yeah. he had went to he had already went through um he went to cag as a um as a uh, ds guy yeah and then I, I don't know if he made the transition to being an operator or not but i, I saw him out at fort bragg and we talked and i've seen him you know he was he was doing like psd yeah. stuff so it's crazy how the your first leadership can have kind of that lasting effect on you oh yeah sometimes in the negative too i've heard from other people but it's crazy that first leadership uh, how much impact oh yeah for sure i think that um obviously you learn you can learn from any all your experiences you know shitty leadership you learn from that you learn from crappy leadership and i've definitely had my share of of crappy leadership too but um yeah i was very fortunate i think it was i think some of it just had to do with my like drive as a young kid Mm -hmm. to um to want to be the best and then we kind of got put together because they do these competitions not quite as badass as like brc or like best sapper but the mps have a big competition every year okay and that's kind of how we got put together like i did the baton death march and then they did a tryouts for like the it's called warfighter um for mps and then basically we had it we were in the same platoon even you know he wasn't my team leader he tried out, we both made it, and they were like, all right, you just just become an organic team. And then we had another kid that was a um, really high-speed dude. He ended up getting killed um, in uh, 2002, or excuse me, uh, when was Mason killed? Mason was killed in 2004 after Iraq trip. He was, w- went home on leave in D.C. and got shot in like a drive-by shooting. What? Pretty, yeah, That's fucked crazy. up. But um, he's a really, really, really good kid. Um, to me, it was like... One of like the one of those like badass army stories where like a kid comes from nothing, you know, like grew up in the ghetto of like southeast DC, and then you know his like I think his parents um, were in law enforcement. He wanted to be an MP, and like he just kind of wanted to change the community. He had that kind of like really good spirit and light about him. Um, just a, a phenomenal kid, great athlete, you know. And then 
it just sucks because he like did all the, I think he was like a team leader in Iraq too by this time, you know, it's obviously a couple years later, but, but it was us three, um, pretty on squared a team. away MP unit, huh? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I don't, not necessarily maybe the, the, the entire unit, okay, it was yeah. decent. Yeah. I think, I think looking back on it too, um, pre nine 11, I feel like there was a lot more discipline and, um, I think we, we did a decent job as a military to kind of wash away some of the crap that we did, you know, just to fill time. Sure. But also some of those time saving issues. Um, I think that some of the discipline kind of went out of the window. So I think like looking back on it, it was just a little bit more disciplined. Okay. And then I was a private man. So, yeah. you know, I didn't really I didn't <laughs> care what was going on around me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I did that. I did Fort Hood, uh, was on that team for like a year and then same kind of thing was like, Hey, there's a selection, you know, to go to, um, which is like SRT was like the SWAT team okay. for, for MPs. So I made it through that. And then, um, went to like school and then right after that happened is like when 9-11 happened where, where were you on 9-11 uh on 9-11 i was actually just got done doing pt okay uh, we were in my barracks we were in the barracks changing you know getting ready for a regular day and then um watching on tv like watch it all happen and then basically was like went down to the platoon office and it was like hey um you guys are going to be night shift i was a, i was a uh i was a corporal then and um so he, your team's gonna be on night shift. So go back upstairs, get some sleep, and um, we basically got we're down for probably you know I don't know a couple hours, you know maybe five six hours, and then went back down, loaded up the trucks, and then I was like NCIC at the East Gate for like a week on <laughs> Fort Hood, you know, as like a corporal. What What were um, your thoughts? You know, seeing that being in the army, was it like did it dawn on you how big it was at the time, or? Um, was it hard to sort of like process all of it? I think it was like definitely kind of hard to process. Um, one of those like surreal type of feelings, you know, like the same, I guess not as dramatic, but the same type of feeling that if you see uh, like an acquaintance, not necessarily like a good buddy, but like somebody dies or you see that in combat, right? Like right. you see, and it's kind of like, oh shit, man, like it's for real, you know? Like mm -hmm. I think that was kind of, it was very surreal in that kind of uh in that aspect where it was like all these people just died you know like ter and then, then it was like rumor mirror like terrorists and this and then it was like you know it was we're in afghanistan like i mean i was on the gate like two days you know people would drive by the up to the gate and Fort Hood before that was an open post there's like a highway that runs yeah there, right? exactly <laughs> so we had to close down the gates and i was in charge of like one of the biggest gates on on fort hood and, um, you know, people were waiting in traffic for, you know, five, six hours to even get on post. And, um, you know, everyone comes through is talking to you and like, hey, how you doing? You know, because we're just standing outside for, you know, 12 hour, 15 hour, you know, literally I was on the gate. I think I think that first night I went there, I was on the gate like uh, I didn't get any relief, like like, like two days, almost like almost 48 hours. Wow. Um, and uh so everybody coming up, you know, is rumor milling and I don't have any intel and there's no cell phone. There's no, I don't have any, I only have what people are, you know, telling me what's going on, yeah. you know? So it was like, Oh, we're going to Afghanistan and like, you know, how people are in the military. And, um, yeah, it was kind of weird. And then basically like once they got control of the gate and figured out, you know, what we're going to do and started hard structuring and we were already, um, we were already on par to be going to operation bright star in Egypt Okay. For in uh, after September, this is like October, 
so we ended up going, keeping the deployment. And what they did with SRT was they, um, they put us augmenting uh, the Marine Fast team, which is like, I don't know, the fake-ass SEAL team. That's all I knew what the SEALs called them. <laughs> um, so we went to Egypt, and uh, we were stationed out of, um, what's the name, Alexandria, Egypt, like on the, uh, on the coast. It's a big... Um, like port city, okay. a lot of ships and stuff in and out of there. And basically like kind of the intel we got was like, Hey, there's a lot of things funded, um, that Al Qaeda uses that are, um, like actual, like legitimate businesses. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do is basically hit them hard, tax them, like, you know, basically follow the money, follow the money trail. Right. So what we did was we ended up doing basically that kind of like outer cordon security for, uh, whatever seals were there and i was again i was young you know this is almost 20 years ago now yeah. um is this technically a deployment like did you get a pass yeah, it was, for it it was a deployment no we didn't get um like uh any combat um stuff we did get like hazard duty pay and some things like okay. that but we didn't get like this is uh kind of the first engagement i think of 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 kind of the the gy era um the only guy the guys that were going to afghanistan they got you know combat patches and stuff but for us, we didn't get any of that. We did get some hazard duty pay. Um, what we what we really did was um, we flew out in helicopters or we rode out in boats with the Marines. And then as the SEALs were pushing through and securing um, securing the boats itself, we were basically just kind of like uh, basically their support. You know, like we, once they cleared something, we move up to it, hold it down. Or if they got any detainees or whatever, we take all those guys, put them in like one connect, separate them. Um, Things like that. Uh, it was a good experience. It, it was a really good experience. Okay. Um, so it was kind of my first experience with kind of seeing what's soft. Right? Yeah, very unique. Um, not really sure how we got kind of put on that mission. Mm-hmm. We were initially there to do PSD for um, just for the operation, for the for the exercise, for Bright Star itself. And then we kind of got tossed into, because we're MPs, I, I think all the MP units that went were in like a Force Pro um deployment anyway so they weren't really part of the exercise they were doing all the force protection and then for us because we're srt and we were deployed mm-hmm. i think we just kind of got in a cool situation i don't know if it was like my oic or something you know was able to talk his way into whatever but <laughs> um yeah we ended up uh, not just doing psd uh for like all the dignitaries and generals and stuff that were there we did that a little bit um and then we ended up kind of we split into like two uh, two teams basically we had like an upsell and a downsell and if you were if you were on upsell you were obviously out with the with the seals and uh, and the port um, and I would say more with the fast team we didn't necessarily interact with the with the seals that much um, was, then, what was your interaction like though when did the little bit that you did was it positive on you were you like I want to be like those dudes yeah or? it was super positive man okay. I mean I think I think for for me. Uh, and, and I guess kind of going forward, my well, my background, it was like I was just underestimating myself for so long, you know. Sure, like yeah. I never, if I saw a dude with like a Ranger tab or like it, like if like at the E five Jeremiah saw like the E seven Jeremiah, I'd be like, "There's no fucking way, that's not me," <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, I think I just underestimated myself and just looked yeah. at those dudes like, "Man, that's crazy that they can that they can make it through that training or be that badass," yeah. you know. Yeah. So I was just very like just kind of humble to be around and I didn't really have that many interactions most of my interactions with those guys were um actually like physically on the boats or um you know like they call for support or they bring guys out to me you know I'm just kind of like 
cannon off, you know, pucks, detainees and, and, um, help them segregate them so they can do their tactical questioning and things like that. And, and a lot of times I didn't know who was who, you know, I didn't know who was like an actual like operator versus who was work for like customs or whatever, because some of the, you know, the, the civilian kind of look wasn't really in then it was still like the, you know, the sweet like MP5, like, you know, <laughs> BDUs. Um, yeah. And then the, the, all the, all the guys that obviously were, were attached to NSW or whatever they worked for. Um, had that same kind of cool guy look, you know? Okay. So I didn't necessarily know who was who. Um, you know, I was a, I was a corporal dude. I was just a team leader yeah. on SRT, you know? So, uh, I was an entry team leader and that's, was my role. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, we did that. It was, it was a pretty cool experience. Not as badass as it actually sounds. It's a little more just kind of riding on a boat and, and de- dealing <laughs> with detainees. Um, Still kind of one of a kind, but yeah, yeah, for what, sure. What was your first deployment then, post nine eleven? So my first deployment. So I guess technically that was a deployment, and then um, the next time. So we got back. I reenlisted to go to Fort McPherson, Georgia, okay. and uh, so it's downtown there? Atlanta. Um, I basically got offered a job to be um, PSO for like, so basically like a PSD for Forcecom. Okay, and. Um, I just, after doing the PSD stuff, I met guys who had done it, uh, and it just sounded like a cool job. I wasn't, like I said, I didn't know anything about, like, soft or, like, you know, Ranger Battalion or, you know, I didn't know any of that shit, man. I was an MP at Fort Hood, Texas. Like, there was no soft guys around us, nothing like that. So, so the coolest, like, job that was available was, hey, if you go to this selection process and you get picked, then you can reenlist for that duty assignment and you'll be assigned to Forcecom and not the MP company there. For the, for the listeners that don't speak Army, what's PSD and PSO? Okay, so PSD is uh, personal security detail okay. and PSO is basically your personal security officer. So you're like the dude, it's like being Secret Service okay. and if you're actually assigned as a PSO, you're like the main guy that would protect the executive um, whether it's an officer or the president or whatever, they always have like that guy that would be the main dude that would get them out of harm's way, jump in front of bullets, things like that. So, I mean, I've been in the army for 10 years. I didn't know that that was there. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, exactly. So I was just like, Oh yeah, this is cool. And, um, with my SRT background, it was like pretty easy transition for me to be able to go to that selection and get that job. And most of the selections is kind of an interview process about like, are you the right fit for, working around generals and stuff. Okay. Um, kind of a weird duty station. It was dope. I was in downtown Atlanta. Atlanta's a really cool city. Um, but I did like everything from, you know, wearing a suit, riding with the force comm commanders. Are you armed to, to most of that? Yeah, you're always cool. armed. Cool. To literally like driving uh, Mrs. Ellis like to get groceries, you know, like, (laughs) uh, so, I mean, it wasn't, it it was cool, man. Um, you know, all the way to like wearing blues, white gloves with like, um, you know, like parade kind of uniform, uh, why they had parties and stuff at their house. Like I would be kind of the doorman, if you will. Um, which, yeah, and it was, I, I, that, that family treated me awesome. Um, the general and his wife didn't, you know, obviously I was there to work, but you know, they, I mean, they bought me like Christmas presents and like, oh, cool. you know, it, they were, yeah, it was, it was a really cool, cool experience. Um, and then from there, so I didn't really, I traveled, I wouldn't say deployment, you know, if we, we did go check on sites or go to most of his training, um, 
areas or big exercises. So I went to, you know, back to Egypt again, like Turkey, um, kind of all over like the NATO, basically anything NATO stuff. We flew was in Afghanistan and Iraq. Just like a couple of days on the ground? Yeah, or? just a couple of days on the ground. Um, we'd fly in, you know, and he would just kind of tour like <laughs> Kabul or you know, do his meetings with whoever and then we'd fly back out. So nothing... Um, nothing major at all like no nothing super cool um that's still i mean that's really unique for, yeah for, for sure the army and, it, and i think it helped set me up for um being when it, when you're special forces it's like you have to be able to articulate and brief and just be such a force multiplier even to conventional forces so like i always say like any e7 green beret should be able to just walk into any S3 shop in the army and mm-hmm. and run it, be able to take it over and be like that S3, like replace that major that's running that battalion S3 shop. So watching um, watching that general sort of be diplomatic, did you pick things up that you applied later as a Green Beret? I don't, I don't think it was necessarily him being diplomatic. I think it was more of me not being scared to like interact with sergeant majors okay. and, and generals and colonels. And it was like... It was like I just saw like Fulberg colonels like kissing this dude's ass when it was like, <laughs> okay, so you're a normal person, bro. So when yeah. I would later on in the future, that's kind of how I always would talk to people. Okay. And I, I had these very personal interactions with very, very senior people in the army. And they're just like us, you know? Sure. There's normal dudes. And a lot of times the boss is getting his ass kissed so much he doesn't want to talk about work. Yeah. He, he wants to talk about fishing or how are your kids or how his kids or whatever the case is. I think that a lot of times there's just so much ass kissing going on with those senior guys that, you know, they, they don't ever really get a chance to kind of unwind and just be a normal kind of person and not always worried about that. So I try to kind of pride myself on trying to take away that in the conversation, you know, make it not about work, just about normal shit that's going on. And I think that helped me later on in the future, be able to, brief with confidence or talk with anybody or not be scared to interact with, you know, Colonel so-and-so or Sergeant Major so-and-so, whatever. So I think that was a, a good experience for me for sure. How long were you doing that total for? So I did that for two years. Oh, it was a two year job. Two year huh? job. Sure. And then I, um, reenlisted to go back to Fort hood. Okay. So, um, that's kind of all I knew, you know, I, I think it was more like, you, you know, this is what, you know, type of deal. Um, I did get a cool chance to, uh, it's kind of my first interaction with like, guys from range regiment or anything like that. I went to cause Benning, Benning was so close. So okay. I did go to like all the combatives. This is before level four was out, but I went to one, two and three kind of all back to back. Um, I got a chance, you know, I went to airborne school. I went to uh, combatives and this was, you know, in like 2003 when it was like, when it was the fight house for real, you yeah. know, <laughs> I went when it was hard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I did that, and, and then I went to PLDC, which is like the course you go to to be a sergeant, okay. um, and it's changed, you know, names 35 times since I've been in the army. But uh, and that's why I went to I went there with a bunch of guys from uh, Ranger Regiment, okay. and just it was cool competing against them, you know, like being like the first guy back at Land Nav or like doing our runs and stuff, and them just being like, who the fuck is this kid? Yeah. You know? How did they treat you? Um, you know, they talk shit. Uh, being stuff. like yeah but yeah. being like like in a friendly way you know okay. and i ended up being yeah. buddies with um a bunch of dudes from 375 and okay. and uh i fit right in with them you know i wasn't like they didn't treat me any different um 
I guess maybe they did, you know, like I wasn't, um, obviously I'm not a ranger and I wasn't part of their crew, but as far as like the six or seven of us dudes that always hung out and did everything together at PLDC, you know, we were friends and still, you know, talk now. And, um, they didn't, uh, I think they looked at me as kind of like a quality dude and not, not just like some pogue ass MP, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, it, I think that's a just bit people. of confidence. Because you said before that you were, you yeah, didn't I mean, kind of underestimated yourself. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. I think, like, even when I went to, like, combatus program, you know, like, I've always, I've been, I've been fighting, like, all my life, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, I won, uh, my family, like, you know, kind of back up, like, high school, you know, I wrestled and I did, um, I competed in, like, uh, like open style karate tournaments and, like, I was, like, a 96 world champ. Like, I've, I've done a lot of, like, so if the fight game and, like, kind of that atmosphere, uh, obviously UFC starting to pop off at this time. Um, so I, I was, I was holding my own, you know, like dudes knew who I was at the fight house and when I went through the course and the instructors there, I thought it was cool. And I, so I, I just didn't look at it as like an overall, like, could I be a ranger or could I go to selection? You know, mm-hmm. I didn't look at that either. Okay. I just was like, just trying to do my best at whatever I was kind of was in front of me. Um, was the combative thing just something to help you with your career? Or was it kind of a hobby too during that time? Um, I would say I definitely kind of missed like, you know, hitting mitts or, or wrestling and grappling and stuff. And then I didn't really know that was a thing. And then basically it's kind of like, hey, do you want to go to this combatives course? And I was like, what is it? And they're like, I don't know. The army just started a new thing. So I was like, yeah. yeah. So then I went there and then the guy, the instructors was like, hey man, do you want to stay for next week is level two? And I was like, yeah. So I did that. <laughs> and then they were like, can you call your command and see if you can stay? And I was like, yeah, dude, whatever. Yeah. Like, so I was at Benning, you know, for like a month and a half or two months. Okay. Um, yeah. And I just had a, had a good time. And, um, this was like all the guys that are kind of legends of the game. And as far as, um, the fight house goes, uh, that's when they were like chief instructors or like very, very new, you know, they were like blue belts and maybe purple belts under, under like Gracie's. Um, so, I mean, there was very, very early, uh, which was cool. You yeah, know, that's real cool. Um, yeah. So I didn't really look at it like a confidence booster. It was just kind of my world. Like, oh yeah, I'm grappling yeah. and wrestling and fighting, hitting mitts and kicking dudes and whatever. There was just something I liked and, and always kind of did. Um, so at this time, are you still kind of cool with the MOS you're in and the unit? Yeah. I, I, I guess I really didn't know too much, you know, sure. I was just yeah. still kind of like, Hey, I'm an MP man. Like I didn't know you could like change or I wasn't aware of any of that and i think some of that too is kind of like pre-internet pre sure. you know, this is 2002 2003 yeah. 2004 time frame so i think it's like there was no instagram there was no like you can't research shit on the internet like i ran and pull up your phone you know and i think nowadays yeah. they just have so much knowledge at your fingertips yeah that maybe that might have changed a little bit of what i was doing or what i perceived you know sure. what i wanted to do um so i did know that like when i was in uh pldc other rangers they 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 basically graduated like five days early so they could get time off because they were deploying to Iraq. Okay. So this was like March of 2003 is when I went to uh, PLDC. And then that same, um, I guess like same year, I uh, um, re-enlisted and I ended up going back to Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. And then I did a, a year as a squad leader in Iraq from like I think November 05 to November 06. Are you a five for that deployment then? I was E five and then I made E six on the on okay. the deployment. Yeah. Um how was that trip? Um it was a good trip. Um uh, we did um 
mostly I do. I was responsible for area security around um, Bakuba and Udame area. I had a pretty big gap, pretty big swath of like all of Cheyenne. Um, the route was route Cheyenne was from like uh, Warhorse, which is like uh, from Warhorse up into Udame was kind of my area, um, and I basically just worked night shift, you know, twelve hour shifts every day, yeah. uh, doing area security and. Um, kind of MSR patrol, so we were we were like the sheriff in that area. So if anybody got ticked up or IED or whatever, we'd go assist. Um, Are you staying physically fit during that trip too? Oh yeah, dude. Okay. I mean, that's all we did was like lift weights. Yeah. And fuck it, this is like when I first started getting into lifting weights. Okay. So it was, was 05. I didn't really ever lift weights before then. I just ran and climbed ropes and pull ups and did just army shit. You know. Sure. I had a um, platoon sergeant. We call him Bam from Big Ass Mexican. He's a uh, CSM uh, in. Um, he's not in the 101st, but he's a sergeant major in uh, at Campbell, whatever MP battalion that's there. I don't. I'm not sure of it, but he's another double tab. Uh, he, he's at Rangers, Ranger and Sapper MP as well. Um, and we both ended up going to Sapper School together, but in the future. But anyway, he he's this big tough Mexican dude, same as me. Probably should have just went to selection you know when he was like e5 or e6 and just one of those dudes where you're like how is this fucking guy like yeah. not a operator um just a badass dude and he got me into lifting weights and um and then and they had friday night fights every night at our fob really so i basically just boxed every friday night and was like how'd you do i i i, I um i did pretty good man i did uh a lot of KOs, like I was probably why I have all, a lot of my head trauma now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I lost a, to a decision to a Marine. It was like a who's like a former like pro boxer. Um, so I did pretty good. I mean, I I mean I, I held my own against him, and I didn't, you know we went we did like five round. It was like two minute rounds, five rounds. You like regular boxing smokers, you know. Was there like a shitload of people that come watch it? Oh yeah, dude. We had <laughs> it was like it was like the the heat, you know. But it was dope because I was um. Like all like I I think they were like from India or Nepal or something like all the guys that cooked and stuff on yeah. the fob yeah. and they'd always be like oh heart like a lion like yeah. my guy and give me more food and shit yeah. it was funny I was kind of like, me and like three other dudes and that one of the guys was a Marine infantry kid it was like just a sick boxer he's from like he was from like Compton or something okay he was from like somewhere in L A that was really rough and he's just this monster of a kid man that grew up boxing yeah. I mean you know he beat the shit out of me <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'd lasted but I was like oh Jesus yeah. um, but I ended up you know like we'd always kind of talk shit to other platoons or whatever and I'd fight dudes from other platoons or other companies or infantry dudes and we, had, we had the uh, marine infantry company that was there with us so go back and forth to those dudes boxing and, and we just had a good time man I had a pretty good deployment um, we um how old were you when you got back? I w when I got back, I was uh, 26. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after that trip, did you, in retrospect, did you feel like you had any uh, negative impacts after that deployment that you could see looking back now? Looking back now, I think I definitely had some like overpressure stuff from IEDs. Uh, you know, now that I know what I know about TBIs. Definitely from boxing. You know, I mean, I True. I was putting it out there, man. Like I was wasn't just boxing. Like I was. Like, I'm not a very good boxer anyway. You know, I like to kick and do other things. So, I mean, it was, I was definitely just banging with dudes. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, every fight it was like, you know, 
the next hole, like bef- until I go to sleep. I mean, I can't really hear. It's like, yeah, that noise <laughs> in your ear, um, in your head, you know, I mean, definitely, um, definitely was, you know, causing a lot of brain trauma in there. Yeah. Uh, and then when I say boxing, this isn't like two guys who know how to do the sport. It's like, dudes that think they're tough enough and put on gloves and just beat the hell out of each other (laughs) style of uh, fighting. So I think like that was kind of it. And, but, um, I didn't really looking back on it and I felt fine. You know, I was 26 years old. I felt like I was in good shape. And, um, while I was in Iraq, it was kind of like, well, I want to be a drill sergeant. So, um, and I was kind of like my way to pay it forward. I think like when I went to basic training at a drill sergeant named drill sergeant Clark, um, I wish I could figure out where he is today, but he's just, he was like, what I remember, um, I have another dude, one of my really good buddies, uh, they almost look a lot alike. Um, and we ended up being drill stars together and I kind of get into that story in a second, but he, um, he's just like this buff ass black dude. It looks kind of like Tyrese, like the perfect, like jawline, like just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just tough as fuck looking dude. And uh, I remember when I was in when we were in basic training, we pulled up in the cattle truck and his dude was just standing at like parade rest, like on the sidewalk, not like zero emotion, not moving. And it was like the first time when I, like if you were to say like, if you were to draw a picture, like look in the dictionary of like drill sergeant or like soldier, like that was the fucking dude, you know, it was yeah. like, holy shit. Um, so I think like he had such a good impact on my life, you know, and like pushing us and just was just such a good to me, and I, I understand you're very impressionable as a private, you know, like obviously, but he, um, it was one of those things where I was like, man, I want to be like that, you know, like I want to try to, how can I influence or how can I, you know, do that? And that was one thing I wanted to do was be a drill sergeant. So, um, uh, right after we got back from Iraq, got back in November, I ended up going to drill sergeant school like the following summer. It's so, like a summer of 07, went to drill sergeant school. Um, um, and then, you know, was a drill sergeant for two years. Uh, so I got stationed in Fort Leonard when I was an OSIT MP, OSIT drill sergeant. Uh-huh. Um, that was a really, that was, that was the, the, my favorite time in the army, like okay. absolute best thing I ever did. Um, in the army. It's, um, you like the trail that much, huh? Yeah, man. I, I loved it. I mean, it, I didn't want to do more than two years, you know, <laughs> it's a hard job. Yeah. Um, but just kind of like, Someone explained it to me when I was at drill sergeant school. I, you know, they're briefing everybody, and I think it was like most of drill sergeant school is like it's just like basic training. But then when you go into like your separate classes instead of like you know your private, basically you go to auditorium and they tell you like don't take money from privates, don't have sex with them, and it's like <laughs> it's all about like don't do the wrong shit, right? Right. Um, every now and then you'll get like positive interactions from like an old drill sergeant or a sergeant major or something, and and one of the sergeant majors was talking and he was basically just saying like, hey, this is your chance, your one chance in the world to be a rock star. Like no one else, and this is before social media too, you know? So it's like you, no one gets an opportunity to influence like a thousand people's lives. Yeah. Unless you're a celebrity, you know, unless you're a rock star. So this is your chance, your bubble to affect, you know, a thousand plus people's lives. So do a good job. Like, and I, I really took that like seriously and was like, okay, I get that now. Like I understand that mindset of what being a drill sergeant is and what you're what you're doing and what you're producing you know um you can have a lasting impression on kids go into their units and be the difference in them being like a a shitbag soldier or a good soldier Mm -hmm. i really think that i I think that some 
when you're that young, you're very impressionable too. And most people going through basic training or, you know, right out of high school. So they're very impressionable. And if you can have kind of a lasting impression and still a lot of pride in them and a lot of like competition and competitive spirit and just drive, they can continue to push that forward with their military career. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just had a blast, man. Like just competing. It was so, it was so much competition as a drill sergeant. Cause it's like, which company shoots the best, like which platoon, you know, does this and that. And it's like the, the privates are going to be as good as what you put into them, sure. you know? Yeah. So that was a, a cool thing. And, and I met some really great people, uh, when I was a drill sergeant, I'm, um, friends with, uh, two of the guys, like, uh, really close friends with two of the guys. Um, I'm kind of the worst friend on the planet, which I'm sure a lot of military dudes are, you know, you, you don't really talk to dudes for like two years or whatever. And they're like, Oh shit. And we see each other. You're like brothers again, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, really good friends with two of the guys still. Um, and the other guy, uh, Jerome, he, he's like, he's that dude. Like he's the, you see him in uniform. You're just like, Jesus Christ. Like that's <laughs> a soldier, man. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I just had a, I had a really good crew around me, you know, as a drill sergeant. And, um, so then when I first got to Fort Leonard Wood, I went to drill sergeant school with, obviously, there's, MB, there's NBC engineer and MPs. It's kind of like the, the main focus on Fort Leonard Wood. Okay. Um, I went to school with a couple of engineers that were like, you know, went to Sapper school. I went to uh, drill sergeant school with them. And I was like, oh, shit, Sapper school is here, you know? And I was like, that's pretty dope. And at first, as soon as I got there, I was like, I want to go to Sapper school. You mm-hmm. know, my first, I was like, all right, well, we'll see how you do after a year on the trail, you know, like do a good job on the trail or do this, do that. And see if we can get a sapper slot so i ended up um you know like a year and a half later ended up getting ready to go to sapper got got it into sapper school mm-hmm. and uh, my platoon sergeant that was with me in iraq his name is uh, jose shori call him bam he we both went together like okay. he was in another company he was a drill sergeant in another company and we both went to sapper school together were you prepared for it oh dude i i i was in the best shape of my life going into staff school. But what about the mental part too? Cause isn't it like pretty it, challenging yeah, I mean, mentally? So I had a buddy, another buddy, he was kind of one of the f- first MPs to go through in a long time. Okay. Um, he's actually a company commander now. And then um, he was in the 160th and now he's like an Intel company or something. But anyway, he um, went through super smart dude. He uh, took really good notes and like he had knew some of the guys and we knew a bunch of the sapper instructors because of the fight house. Okay. So kind of there was a crew of drill sergeants and a crew of sapper instructors that would always like roll together and kind of bang, you know, once a, once a couple times a month when we could all get together. Um, What's your mindset going into sapper? Is it something that you really wanted to achieve or you just kind of a sponge, like just wanted to soak it up? What's your yeah, mindset? I think it was more like I definitely wanted to graduate, you know, with this, mm-hmm. with the sapper tab. Um, I was just there to like just soak it up, man, okay. and just be like a sponge and... I studied demo, I, st- I tied knots, you know, I did those things going in, um, just from the Sapper handbook my buddy gave me and told me like that some of the things I needed to know. He, he had graduated like a month before I went. Okay. Um, and as far as like training goes, I mean, I, w- I think like part of it was being a drill sergeant, I was such in good shape because my company, we didn't ride trans, we marched everywhere and I just put on a rucksack. So I would just you know, full days load with the privates and I'd have a, you know, 35, 45 pound rucksack on my back. And then I would go train afterwards. Okay. So I was like doing PT. I was like leading alpha group runs in the morning, walking with a rucksack on all day. I just wear it all day long. And then in the evening I was like, you know, banging tires, flipping tires and running and rucking and stuff. So, um, 
that's where I kind of like first got like my coaching bug where it was like, I've, I'm not saying I know more than other people, but it was like, I would try to follow programs. This is about like right when CrossFit started kind of getting, okay. getting in there, you know, we did a little bit of CrossFit stuff too, but I think like, I was just like, man, I, I, I know what I need to do training wise. Mm-hmm. So I just crushed, man. I just worked out hard. And when I got to cyber school, um, ended up being like honor grad and, and just, you were on just crushing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which is, that, is funny cause I was an MP. So yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, you know, cause there's, it's all point based and, um, your first 500 points are doing like general. So there's a thousand point system. Mm-hmm. You have to have 700 points to graduate and you have to have 50% goes in all your patrols to graduate. So just cause you grad or to tab, just cause you graduate cyber school doesn't mean you tab. Did so you, you have can, people in your class? Oh or? yeah. We started with, we started with 40, <laughs> graduated 23 and only, and only uh, four of us tapped. Were those dudes heartbroken that, I mean, you have, Oh, there's a bunch of dudes. Yeah. They're going, you know, go on patrols, don't get goes on patrols. And they're just, that's it. Yeah. They know it too. You're like, <laughs> fuck dude. Um, yeah. So I had a blast at cyber school. Um, I had a uh, 18 Charlie from first group there. He was a f- little freaking, he was a little freak, man. Yeah. Um, he was a stud and he was just like, why are you not like, what are you doing? You know, it was kind of <laughs> the first like sit down conversation anybody ever gave me. It was like, what are you doing in the regular army, bro? Yeah. And he was literally just like, I, he's like, I'm a green brain man. And like, you run circles around the dudes I know. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I was just super like still kind of like, Oh shit. Um, blast at cyber school. Um, got finished with cyber school. And then right after cyber school gradu- graduated, I had like a week off and then I went to SLC. Um, so it's like this, you know, the start, the school you have to be to be like a sergeant first class or like a senior NCO. So I went to that. Um, I was, uh, undergrad and PT. I, I've gotten PT award, Ironman award at every school I've ever been to. And I kind of like, that was like my, like kind of pride, you know, I was like, I need to be better than the fucking dudes <laughs> at B-Knock or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, when I went to PODC with all the Rangers, you know, they were like, who the hell is this dude? Yeah. They just beat me on the run. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, did that and at graduation because I was, um, undergrad, uh, I, you know, walk out on the stage first and, you know, came off first and the general, the, the commandant and the, um, sergeant major standing there. The commandant was a ranger. He has a ranger tab. And, um, he shakes my hand and he's basically like, he puts a ranger tab in my hand and he says like, he says like, Hey, here's your drive on tab. Right. And I was like, Oh, thank you, sir. This figure in like, yeah, man, cool. Like, okay. He gave me a tab. Mm-hmm. Sergeant major shakes my hand, puts a coin in my hand and he says January 3rd. And this is like December, like, I don't know, the day of like Exodus, you know, like 19th or 18, 19. And, uh, he's like January 3rd. What? He's like ranger school. And I was like, uh, okay, Sergeant Major. He's like, oh, you don't want to fucking go? I was like, no, I want, no, I fucking want to go. He's like, okay. He's kind of laughing. And uh, so I had like two weeks to get all my shit ready, you know, go to the PX and buy all the crap you need on that packing no, list. No pre-ranger either? No pre-ranger. Um, so Sapper School is my pre-ranger. Okay. So they allow you to use Sapper School as, as pre-ranger. That's fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I went to, you know, I, I had just started putting enough weight back on and like getting back into you know, being normal after cyber school. And, and, uh, then I went to ranger school and I went in January and it was, um, miserable dude. It was the most traumatic thing I ever did in my life. I think <laughs> going to fucking ranger school in January. Um, it was so fucking cold, dude. Like, holy shit. It sucked. Um, but I had a great time. I mean, I, 
I was, I was, um, I was really lucky. I got, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if it's because I had a tab on or what, but I went to, um, get in line and, uh, it was like the very first day of range school where like, check your, you know, you do your packing list crap. And they're like, all right. And then one of the, the RIs say, Hey, go stand over there and get in that formation. And the formation he told me to go stand into was the formation with, um, all of the, I don't even think you had tabs. I don't know how it happened. I don't remember, but it was all kids from range regiment and dudes from, it was all the guys from SOCOM. So it was all like the green berets that were there, the kids from range regiment that were there. He says, go stand in that line, go get in that formation. I'm like Roger that. So I'm just in formation. And I heard like the regiment kids, you know, the bat boys were like, Hey, no matter what happens, run to fuck, run around the back and get an alpha company. Cause they all wanted to be in the same company right okay so it's like guys from like 175 or whatever were like saying like hey we're going to this fucking company so i was like fuck it if they're all going to that company like i'm gonna go to this company like i don't know shit but i've been to sapper school and i know the fucking game right like i know these dudes are from regiment so they must know something more than than i know yeah so um when they said hey you and they were basically just like one two three like alpha bravo charlie to like all the dudes like in different formations and they were trying to like mix up like all the lieutenants so they weren't all together and all the regular army you know infantry kids that were there or whatever so i run around the back and he was like charlie company and i was like shit i'm going out company i just ran around the back like the rangers didn't fuck just did an alpha company <laughs> so i so i was a really cool squad that i was a part of at at first and um just because we had like had like four kids from uh regiment um and uh myself and then like you know, two lieutenants and I think like another like couple regular army dudes, you know. Um you guys, we had a phenomenal like, really good squad. Not everybody made it out of Darby, you know, okay. a bunch of guys failed, but but um ended up and what's crazy was a bunch of the kids I was that was in regiment, they quit when we were there. Wow. And I didn't know that that was you know, I didn't know anything about Ranger Regiment at the time and yeah. basically like through stories and then other other Rangers that made it all the way through that was in my squad were like, fuck those dudes, like those fucking pussies, like quit. You know, they were pissed. And I was like yeah. and I now after like the interaction with them after Ranger School and you know, being a patrol base or my Ranger buddy and them talking the whole time, then you you understand, you're like, Oh shit, I I didn't know it was like you get kicked out and all this other things, you know. But um yeah, it was like, it was just raining so fucking hard when we were in Darby and snowing and raining and just shitty. And like the RIs would come out, you know, and have a big fire going and be like, all right, if you LOM, like you can come get a donut. They had like Dunkin' Donuts and hot pizza and shit. And dudes were just like, fuck it, I quit. And like going up there and signing their paper and quitting. Do, do people really ND on purpose when it's that bad? Did you see that? I didn't see any NDs on purpose. Okay. Um, yeah, I, d- I didn't see any NDs on purpose at all. And I, I mean, and I think too, like, I had been to cyber school. I kind of knew, you know, I'd been in the suck fest. I'd been hungry. I'd been tired. Cyber school is definitely harder. It's just not as long. Okay. Uh, patrolling in cyber school is way harder because the rucks are way heavier. There's no ABs. There's only AGs and gunners. And you don't sleep nearly as much in cyber school. And you don't eat. At least at range, we get two MREs. You might get those two, like one at like four in the morning, you get in the patrol base and the other one at like 5.30, yeah. but you're eating. Yeah. Cyber school, it's like, there's days where you don't get anything. Really? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it was, it was, I was good on that part, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the cold was what was just miserable. You know, <laughs> it was, it was so, and everybody would, everybody was going through it, you know, which made it, um, which made it bad. But 
Yeah, it was. Um, I had a good experience Ranger School. So you were straight three crew. Yeah, yeah, I went straight. Dude, Jesus, help me on that, bro. Um, I, there's no way I would do like that crap. You know, like recycle and jeez, man. Um, so I went through Ranger School, and then right after Ranger School, um, when I was in Ranger School, my sergeant major had done like a drug deal with. Um, his name's Nick Bielik. He's actually, they call him Nick the Dick. He actually ended up being like the 175 Sergeant Major uh, and then took up a regiment like leading on to that. But um, he was buddies with Bielik. I guess they did like CrossFit together or something at the academy or whatever. But um, he was like, hey, I got a kid, drill sergeant. He did this, did that. And Bielik was like, okay, well, let's, I'll take him in regiment, you know? Um, so I thought I was going to go be a master breacher in Ranger Regiment. So I get done with Ranger School. Um, and then thought I had these things lined up, you know, prior to going to ranger school. And then when I get back, it was basically like, Hey, you know, you should be getting orders to go to, um, Fort Stewart. So you can go to Hunter you know, you can go to regiment. And I didn't know anything about like, you gotta go to RAS. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I still don't know shit, man. You know, like I kind of <laughs> know a little bit, but I didn't know like, Hey, you gotta go to RAS first and PCS. Like, I don't know the pipeline. I don't know any of this stuff. So um, I get ready to, uh, thinking I was going to be like, fuck yeah, dude, like I'm stoked. Like going to go to Ranger Battalion, you know, like whatever. Um, but then Bielik, he's like, Hey, you're an E7. And I was like, uh, yeah, like I'm, I wasn't E7 yet. I was, I was promotable. Okay. I was on the list just waiting for my number to come up. And he's like, yeah, I can't take you dude. Like, he's like, I'm trying to hide E7s right now in S3, you know? And yeah. I was like, I get it. You know? And I was like, okay, I get it. And he was like, he was cool. He was like, Hey, I'll help you get whatever job you want. What do you want to do? And I was trying to shop around for jobs and like, okay, well maybe I'll go to, um, uh, they offered me like a LERS platoon starting job and like, in like a third ID. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll do that. Um, my buddy got me a platoon starting job and his company so was like, yeah, they're going to Afghanistan. Like I'm fucking down. Right. Um, and that, then it basically just like kind of fell apart. I was like, I got there and the Sergeant major like fucking hated me. Like the time I walked in, you know, I think it's cause I was had two tabs and he thought I was like this cocky fuck. And I, I, in my opinion, like I, I wasn't, I was just like, yeah. what, you know? And, um, I was only there for like not even a month. I just basically like walked in the recruiter was like, Hey man, I need to go to fucking selection like right now. Yeah. And he was like, basically like kind of looked at my shoulder. and was like, all right, bro, when do you want to go? Yeah. And I was like, as soon as possible. He was like, can you go next week? And I was like, yep. So then I just went to selection, fuck, <laughs> got selected, and then um, right after that, um, I PCS'd like as soon as possible to Fort Bragg and started Q course. And this is two, 2010. How was SFAS for you after going through all those easy. schools? Yeah, super easy. Um, I had enough, like, and this is all kind of back to back. This is all a year apart, you know. Like mm -hmm. I went to Sapper School in september 2009 and i was finished with the q course by september 2010 or excuse me finished with sfas uh september 2010 so i, I had done all these things back to back and yeah. i was already knew what my body needed to do uh i was yeah. training with dudes from um from ranger and like i met buddies that were in 175 and i trained with those guys they were getting ready for cac selection and and i think another a couple other dudes were getting ready for rd uh selection so i was with a crew of good dudes that were just training hard and and about that life you know yeah um so i was already i was fine you know i was in good shape um what mos were you going through the q course 
Um, so I had like I had a kind of a rough time in the Q course, man. Yeah. <laughs> I um I went through so I graduated, so I got done with SVS, PCS immediately. Then we started, when I did it, we'd start language, you six months of language, and then you go to SUT and Sear school. Okay. So I was basically like, I wasn't going to be the, I was an E7, so I wasn't going to be the company sergeant major, but like we did the UBR like day one and the other E7 they picked, like couldn't climb a rope or something. And they were like, you come here. And they were like, Hey, you're fucking, I'll tab the fuck out. Like you're the new sergeant major. So I was like, okay. So I was in charge of like my IODA or like my class, you know, um, going through and at selection at, uh, SUT and at Sears school, like I peered like number one, like I was just crushing it with peers. Uh, and, and I, I felt like I should be that way. You know, like at this time I'm already looking at it like, Hey man, I'm a double tab E7, mm-hmm. like going through SUT with a bunch of x-rays and like other people. And it was kind of like me and this other captain, um, he was from, um, 101st super fucking squared away, dude, me and him just, you know, kind of ran our squad and our platoon. And, and, and I was like, you know, these guys should be learning from me. Like I would be, um, I took a lot of pride when I graduated cyber school about what the general told us when we did. And he basically said like, Hey, now you have a tab now, like people are going to look at you different. They're going to expect more out of you. Mm-hmm. And I really took that to heart. And the same thing when I graduated ranger school, you know, it's like, you look at somebody with a tab, you just expect way more out of them. Like he knows how to plan, he knows how to do, you know, there's a certain task that you know he knows how to do. He's been trained in those tasks. So I'm gonna hold that person with a ranger tab to a higher standard than I do the infantryman that doesn't have the ranger tab. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not, even if the other guy's better or whatever, but that's just the kind of pride that I that I feel that, that that's, that's what those tabs are for. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of your way of showing everybody else, like you've been through this training and, and you, you should be held to a different standard. Did so, you have a, a bunch of Sob C kids with you? Yeah, okay. for sure, for sure. And those were good. I had a great time at selection. I met a bunch of Sob C kids and, and they had you know all the G2. It was, like, it was like going to me, I knew at Ranger School what the regiment kids had and what they brought to the table from that G2 standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I just did the same thing with the Sob C kids because all they do is train on brag you know and they know everything about selection and they know exactly where they are and what this road's called and everything yeah. else so so it's like i just you know kind of uh in my hut in my tent you know i had some pretty squared away sob kids along with you know regular army dudes but um yeah so i did um you know like i took sut like that like i need to teach these guys and phenomenal time phenomenal experience still good friends with a lot of dudes from different groups that i was at sut with um, and then right after SUT, I, um, and Sierra school, uh, I go to the Bravo course. So I'm at the 18 Bravo course. As soon as I walk in the Bravo course, the chief, uh, his name is Haddow Green. He's a fucking faggot. I hope he <laughs> listens to this. Um, Haddow Green was a master sergeant. He was in charge of the Bravo course. Okay. As soon as I walked in, he's like, get outside. Took me outside. He smoked me, just me by myself for, I don't know, a couple of hours. Like while the other students are like in 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 class, um, and he just hated me. And I don't know if it was like I had tabs. I was E seven, and he was like E seven should be in this fucking course. And I was just like, dude, okay, man, like Roger that sergeant, you know, yeah. like just trying to keep my head down and like trying to do my thing. And um, I ended up failing um, one of the weapons tests, which is weird about the Bravo course. I don't know if it's still kind of like this, but the way it would work it would be like. 20 guys, like if there was 40 guys in the course, right? Yeah. 30 dudes would fail the hands-on portion, mm-hmm. 10 would pass, and then 
those 30 that failed would basically train the next group of dudes coming through because you've already done it. Mm-hmm. And then like, then like maybe 30 or 20 would pass. Like it had a very, very low pass rate, like first time go in the Bravo course on the hands on eval, just a lot of different weapon systems, a lot of things you need to know. And they put like little flaws in and it's all times. So if you're trying to find like some weird thing that's wrong with this Uzi in like fucking two minutes. Right. And you're like, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. So, um, I, I failed the Uzi, uh, and, um, so got recycled. But then when I got recycled, I was with another bunch of dudes I was at SUT with. Like it was, it was fine. Right. Like I, I was totally good crushing it, going through, going through the course, no problem. Um, and my grades were like, I had like over a, like my, my GPA was like 98, you know, like even though I failed that, that exam and my IODA cadger, like, dude, it's not a big deal. Like this is what happens in the Bravo course. So I was like, cool with it. Um, and then I got, um, I got fucking staff cause I had MRSA and staff from wrestling and shit. And I was rolling, I got staff on my knee and the doc was like, well, you can't go to the field. So I was like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, I don't give a fuck about the staff on my knee. Like I've had it all my life as a kid. Like I grew up with yeah. ringworm and staff protections. <laughs> like it's part of, yeah. part of martial arts, you know? So I got rolled back into another class and I had a bad attitude, man. I, I, I didn't know any of these dudes. I didn't go to the SRT with any of these dudes. And um, they peered me really bad. It was like, they split you into two ODAs. My ODA all gave me like blues, blue slips, you know, it was like, hey, this dude's fucking, fucking hitter. Like I'd go to war with him. And the other ODA fucking hated my guts because I was the team starting that other ODA of one ODA. And I didn't let those guys like push my guys around, do anything. Like I was, I've always been that kind of leader where I was like, fuck you. Like you're not touching my dudes. And I took it like that, like that platoon sergeant role. Like I used my leadership experience to be that way. And, um, it was just had Al green's excuse to get me out of the fucking course because I had, and and the pink slips, I remember distinctively reading one and I, I confronted this kid later on, you know, five, six years later, I saw him in group and, um, he said that he'd rather eat this piece of paper than work with me again, but he wasn't even on my ODA. Whereas like other other guys on my ODA were like, I go to war with this dude anytime. Like mm-hmm. this is the type of 18 Bravo I want on my team, you know. Um, but the Q course is casual roulette, man. Um, so I ended up waiting, getting kicked out basically, uh, waiting to go see Sergeant Major. I go see uh, uh, Johnny Crocker, man. Um, he's a fucking legend in B23. He was the uh, he was the sergeant major of all the IODAs at the time, and I go see him, and he's just kind of laughing. He's like, "What the fuck?" And basically, what happened was all these guys wrote a sworn statement about me. Um, I didn't get to write one. It was totally like one-sided event. Um, we were at the mortar pit, and my guys did all their sector stakes and set up the mortar pit fine. The other ODA came in and started ripping all the stakes out. So I walk over there and they tell me, and I walk over and I'm like, if you touch one of those fucking stakes again, I'm going to beat the fuck out of you. Some dude jumps in the pit, rips a stake out. So we start fucking going at it. I choke him the fuck out. <laughs> Cadre think it's fucking funny and awesome. They're like, well, sometimes you get your ass beat, you yeah. know? Like, But had Al Green knew about it, so he looked for a way to kick me out. So I had all these sworn statements completely from another ODA. Not one statement from my team, from me, nothing, saying what I did. Johnny Crocker was like, this is stupid. Because he's like, they have your entire packet. And he's like, how does this kid have fucking like 200 blue slips the entire time through the course? Yeah. He's got like 12 pink slips. And we're going to kick him out? Like, no. He's like, let's put him in another course. And we'll f- I thought he was going to send me to Robin Sage because I was done with the Bravo course. 
And he's like, you got to go to the Echo course. I was like, fuck my life. <laughs> so, so, I had to, so I had to wait to go to the Echo course. Um, and uh, I get to the Echo course. And I'm in the course with this phenomenal dude. His name's uh, Steve Corfani. He came. He was a 175. He was from Orange. Um, like, and, task, like the task? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was, yeah. He, <laughs> he's fucking sick fucking operator. And he was going through the Q course just to get his tab, you know? Okay. So I met him. We're both in Echo course together. And uh, we both had like, I had like the highest GPA. I ended up being like undergrad at the Echo course and shit. And Remind me what Echo is again? Uh, that's the communications course. Okay. Yeah. I was, so why didn't you pick engineer? Did they not, did you not really I, pick so it? So when I went when, at selection, the sergeant major said um, that, that um, basically like, then I needed to learn another skill set. Mm-hmm. He was like, you have a lot to offer in ODA. You've already been to Sapper school. That's a huge part of engineering what we teach in our course like, so if you went to a bravo course echo course or delta course you're going to get another skill set that you necessarily haven't been trained in you offer a team a lot more makes sense so and then the same kind of talk when i went to, when he told me how to go to the echo course you know i was like okay not a big deal go to the echo course i meet this kid steve corfana um and i never and i guess i can back up a little bit i did um psd when i went through um when i was in atlanta I was kind of like, I guess, like take on, I guess, to um, to uh, SOCOM a bunch. And I, I had worked, that was, I wasn't, I'm not, that, I don't say that special operations, like, yeah, it's the command, but it's not like the same, you know what I mean? It wasn't around all these operators and stuff. I had been through dope ass courses from AWG and like, yeah, my NCIC when I worked there was like a fucking CAG dude, you know, like there was a <laughs> bunch of really cool experiences, but I never really, I don't consider that like, I was here. If I know guys from that time period or that was in that unit, then I can talk to them a little more specific about like what I did. Um, but anyway, I know a lot of sergeant majors and people, right? Yeah. And this whole time through the course, like not one time, like I even I even could have reached out to people and been like, hey, this is what I'm this was going on with me in the Q course. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? I was just like, hey man, I fucking had that attitude. Like I did it. I'm accepting what happened, and I felt like I wasn't in the wrong. And I have so much evidence to show that like. I am a good soldier and I will be a good Green Beret that I just wanted to talk. I, I knew if I got in front of that Sergeant Major that I'd be fine. That's yeah. like how I felt. Yeah. I was still scared, you know, like I was going to sure. kick out of the fucking course. So anyway. So you, and you never got credit for all that Bravo time you spent? No, no, not at all. Not at all. So, <laughs> such horseshit. I know, right? So, um, so I go to the Echo course and then while we're at the Echo course, they say they're expanding the course for two weeks. Awesome. Which would, right? <laughs> so what, what, what was going to happen was at the Echo course, they're expanding it two weeks and then you had to wait like four or five weeks to go to the Robin Sage. Used to be you graduate like Friday from the Echo course and then like Monday you're starting Robin Sage, right? Right. Or like a four day weekend or whatever. Um, so they told us that, and I, and Steve and I both were like, fuck this, man. He's like, dude, it's time to pull the Star Major card. I'm like, let's do it. Yeah. So we both reached out to old, you know, uh, SOCOM Star Majors. Okay. I was like, hey, here's the deal. You yeah, know? Help us. Uh, yeah. And I, uh, so Ray, um, Ray Devins, he's a fucking boss, dude. He used to be a 175 Star Major and uh, then was like 25th ID uh, CSM, but. Um, old RD dude, he's just a fucking monster. He's still to this day, he's old, retired, yeah. fucking <laughs> salty dude. Yeah. Um, so I reached out to him, was like, hey, here's the deal. Yeah. They're trying to send an echo course, blah, blah, blah. Like, so he talks to the guys at SWIC, and they're like, yeah, fuck that. These dudes are good. Like, yeah. We'll fucking send them to 
Cinder Robin Sage. So me and Steve Corfana got to skip like the last like four weeks of the Echo course and just go to Robin Sage. You were kind of owed that break. Yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was kind of cool. Um, and then immediately after I graduated, um, I you know I got orders to third group. I was told I was going to third group when I got back from Robin Sage. Okay. Um, I graduated, and I graduated like February like 13th or something. I reported to third group like that same day, and basically was like, "Hey man, we're deploying. Like, get your shit. Going to fucking going to the um to the GIP, which is a group issue point. Get all your kit and you're fucking deploying." So I was like, "All right, sweet dude." So yeah. literally, then like two weeks of graduating, I was in fucking Afghanistan. So you versus a sob C kid that's a six yeah. with no deployment patch were you treated differently i mean i hope that you were um being new to the yeah team. I, I w- oh you mean like when i got to my oda mm-hmm. so yeah, i was e7 um i didn't go straight to an oda i went to so i went to a third battalion or excuse me um third group first battalion that's what i was assigned to at first okay so i get to um and rob abernathy was the sergeant major flying country I get there and there's some op sergeant, some fucking E8 Green Beret. I don't I don't know who, who it was. It was dark outside, and I just calling names. And he's like, "What?" He's like, "Who?" He's like, "Hey, uh, where's the sergeant first class Jeremiah Wolver?" And I'm like, "Ah, right here, sergeant." And he's like, "Hey, come over here, dude." He's like, "Hey, man, check it out. I'll talk with Star Major, and you're fucking." Um, he's like, "The general's fucking PSD guy is getting fired, and you're up." He's like, "Looked at your resume. You're good." So, well, let me let me back up actually. So. When I got assigned to third group, like, so I graduated mm-hmm. SFAS, I mean the Q course on like, I had my orders cut and I went immediately to get on the group sergeant majors calendar. Cause I felt like I'm an E7. This is what senior NCOs do. I need to go see the group sergeant major, mm-hmm. introduce myself, let them know I'm new to group. Like, well, you know, just do the army thing. Um, the day I got there was also his first day that I was on his calendar. So Brian Reary. And uh, he was basically like, hey, man, this is the wrong fucking answer. He's like, I just got here. Yeah. And he's like, and uh, I don't have all the S1 stuff wrapped around. Like, you know, I would know exactly where you're going and what you're doing. But um, I apologize. You know, he's like, I'm fucked up. Yeah. And he was, and we just talked, you know, 30, 45 minutes for an hour, maybe. Super awesome dude. And, and uh, kind of got my background. And then, you know, then like. Then I go back to battalion and I'm in process and blah, blah, blah. So then fast forward to what I was just talking about. I get off the plane and they're like, you're up. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm up? And they're like, yeah, you, you know how to do PSD. You've done this shit before. Like they need an E7, Green Beret, you're up. And I'm like, roger that. <laughs> so I guess like Sergeant Major remembered our conversation. And then um, the, a guy got fired uh, and he was actually from Ranger Battalion. Um, I don't know if he was still in battalion or whatever, but I know he had a, a scroll and he was a 375 dude. Um, they fired him from, uh, from general Thomas's crew. And I was basically like the next man up, you know? So I go, um, over to camp alpha and I basically just became the general's, um, PSO, you know? Uh, and then I kind of bounced back and forth between. What, what was that like? Uh, like, you know, you got three tabs, you're new to yeah. group and then you're just doing what you've always done. Was that kind of weird? It, it like, was kind of weird. Yeah. It was kind of like, well, and I, I try to look at every situation with like what's positive in the situation. And I was hungry to learn yeah. and just like, I wanted to go to an ODA so bad, but I bounced around from the general to the colonel. So like C. DeSoto commander to Sajidif commander to 
over at Camp Alpha at Mercurian. Like I was kind of all over the place and I kind of, it, it was a good thing, honestly. It was like a, people wanted me there. People yeah. wanted, like they wanted me to go here. And then it was kind of like my group, Sergeant Major, since my group was in theater running the command, they took pride in like they had a dude that they could like send. Like, yeah. oh, you need a dude? Got a dude. He's yeah. fucking solid. Yeah. So um, the cool thing about that job was I spent six months doing it. Mm-hmm. And I got to travel the entire country of Afghanistan. I listened to every single briefing from ODA level to, you know, from team level to like strategic, like what are the generals talking about? Like I'm in those rooms. Mm. So I understand. And I saw every team. I saw what good teams look like. I saw what shitty teams look like. I saw what the issues Marsoc was dealing with, the issues the SEALs were dealing with, like the differences in like how they fight out West versus how they fight out East or all these different things. And I really just like really, really understood like the difference between like the tactical level, the operational level, the strategic level and like how ODAs and, or, you know, SEAL platoons or whatever, have the ability to affect all three of those, mm. you know, um, how you go to one VSO site, which is a village uh, stability operation site. And you see that like that seal teams, um, white space is basically like how far their two forties reach and how far their mortars reach. And that's it. And then you go, you know, uh, five, six, you know, maybe 10 clicks to a different spot, same province, same area. And that seal platoon there is fucking crushing you know, like have like operational and strategic effects on the battlefield because of how they're approaching it and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, what was so your, took, uh, the, took all that away. What was your kit like doing that job? Did you have like a, a access to a lot of different stuff and oh, a, lot yeah, of, for, a lot of good kit? For sure. Um, so I got uh, a mentor there and still to this day, he's one of my like heroes, man. He's a fucking legend. His name is Jason Ridings. He's a sergeant major in fifth group now. He was a third group guy, B23 forever. Um, just a fucking legend of a dude as a team sergeant, um, second, third, third group, uh, second battalion guy. And, um, I basically went to the, he used to be a farting instructor. Okay. So he was the first sergeant, like in charge of all like the B doc and in charge of everything on the camp I lived at. And he was basically like, Hey man, like you want to learn, you want to come with me? And I was like, fuck yeah. So I basically just went through, like, I went to the range almost like five, four to five days a week with this dude who used to be a B23 and a Sephardic instructor. So I just like shot and learned and he taught me how to like set my kit up and like do all this shit. And then we had the, um, like the, the JMU guys or the JCU guys on my camp. So as far as like comms goes, like me learning comms, like I had availability to like all the best like kit that was out there. I had like travel kits for the boss. Um, I would plan all my operations just like an op. So like, if we were flying from Kandahar to another outstation, I wasn't just like getting in a helicopter and that was it. Like I was mapping out, like I would have like GRGs of the entire like uh, battlefield, like where we're flying to, you know, like, Hey, the helicopter goes down. Like, where are we going to be at? Do I have comms here? Like I would go through all those pace plans, everything I learned from Ranger school about planning and contingencies and, you know, old combat experience from Iraq and, and things I learned through my career um, and apply those. So I really looked at each mission like I was going out on an operation, even if I was just getting in a helicopter with a bunch of senior guys, flying them to an outstation and we land, the ODA's there pulling security and they're all set up. And But I would treat it as if worst case scenario, worst case scenario, this helicopter goes down in the middle of the mountains and I'm the only fucking gunfighter on this 
yeah. aircraft. Yeah. So what do I have? You know, so I was able to bounce a lot of that off with Jason and get my kit set up like smokes and certain kind of comms and all these things, which really, really helped me. Um, I really got into like ISR platforms and understanding like how to pull um, with different kind of radios, like actually look at live feeds and see what ISR is doing. Um, so when I got to, um, so I did six months of that and a lot of times the bosses want to go out on missions and all kind of, I had a really cool experience with these dope ass, like pipe hitting, you know, officers yeah. and, and sergeant majors. That's, I mean, once again, super unique. Yeah, for sure. Like. Oh, for sure. And it definitely started my career in SF like that. Um, and then, and then, um, my sergeant major one day was like, Hey man, um, check it out. He's like, Here's the deal. You're gonna stay with us for the rest of the deployment, so a whole year doing this job, or you can do finish it out, do six months. I'll bring in another dude at six months, and you can go to an ODA. And mm -hmm. I was like, Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. So I was gonna do a year in Afghanistan regardless, but right. I was gonna to get to go to an ODA. Um, I didn't. I kind of wanted to pull the Star Major card, and I knew what ODA I wanted to go to. I wanted to go to like one of the sickest ODAs in the country. But I didn't want to like have this weird stigma of like, oh, you didn't earn this or you didn't, Sergeant Major didn't put you on it type of deal. So what I did was I just went to the board with Sergeant Major and I looked at which, which um, ODA needed an echo. So I narrowed it down and I knew what I wanted to do. I knew from being all over the country, I want to go to ODA that's running commandos. So there was two ODAs, one running a VSO site and one running commandos. And I was like, nah, I wanna to go to that ODA's running commandos. Um, so then I, you know, I got to go, go down to that ODA. It was a little weird at first. I think some of the guys on the ODA, they were really old, old school ODA. It was um, a lot of good dudes, but also a lot of the mentality there was like, let's say like, if you didn't stick around and drink beer till fucking eight o'clock at night, like you weren't a fucking good dude, right? And yeah. it's like, no, bro, like I have kids, like I'm ready to go home. Like you're married, you got a wife and kids. You're like, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a weird dynamic on that ODA. What province was it in? Um, so we were in uh, out east. We were, we were basically running all of our green cycle ops okay. out of Jalalabad. Okay. And we lived in Polisharki, which is basically like the west, um, excuse me, the east side of Kabul. And um, just, just so people understand, uh, briefly describe what a commando is. Okay, so commandos are basically like the Af Afghanistan's equivalent to like Ranger Battalion. Like it's what they would call themselves, right? They're, they are like an elite infantry um, unit. Uh, I would say as a whole, they're more like uh, Iowa National Guard um, infantry <laughs> company. Um, do they have night vision at the time? Yes, they do. Okay. But, but at the same time, you think of like Iowa National Guard, there's some pipe hitters, there's probably some dudes in there from like yeah. 375 or, you know, 10th Mountain, blah, blah. They kind of have these sprinklings of like dope ass dudes, right? But as a whole, it's kind of like herding cats. Yeah. Um, they did. They had all of our old gear, you know, like uh, I would say like, like if you see like an old picture, like on Instagram, like my Glover or somebody in like back <laughs> in the day in Iraq, B23, that's like the setup they have now, you know, like yeah. they have like... Uh, 14s or like seven bravos with like you know the old ass like uh what like what what kind of peck did they have like the giant black one that's like the size of like, yeah. like the peck two it's like the size yeah. of the r rifle so your experience um, with them was kind of i had a good experience with the commandos okay. man um i mean i look like an afghan um <laughs> on fucking steroids so it wasn't i i think culturally they like that um 
I never hid that the fact that I was a Christian. I think they, they like that. They like faith, even though they're Muslim. They, they'd rather be with people who have a faith base versus someone who's just like, God doesn't exist to them, you yeah. know? Um, was, uh, was your Christian faith ever an issue in, in ODAs? No, 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 okay. no, not at all. I think most guys have like a faith base. Okay, you know? cool. Uh, we all might not live it in in our mouth, and we cuss a lot and whatever. But I think a, a lot of guys definitely know they have like a a higher. Uh, they under they, they believe in God or they believe in you know Jesus, and they're very like kind of Christian. I would say it's I would say it's more um, you know, percentage wise probably seventy thirty. You know, guys believing in in uh, in Christ and, and being Christian, even if they're not like you know, like holy rollers per se, you yeah, know. Sure. Um, but uh yeah, I had a good experience with the commandos man. Um met one of my best friends named Seth uh on that team and we had a great time, a really badass team sergeant. Um some studs on my team, don't get me wrong, you know. I, I just it was just kind of a weird team dynamic. I think it was a little intimidating for a lot of those dudes too. Like they knew I was like friends, I guess you could say, with like a bunch of sergeant majors and people and I think they were a little weirded out about that. Um, I didn't pull the sergeant major card to get to that team. You know, I think that was kind of misconstrued. I think they kind of thought that. Was the um, op tempo pretty high pace or? Yeah, I mean, we were running um, three cycles. So we did red, amber, green, and green was like when you're out on operations. Mm -hmm. We had um, three companies in that battalion, Kandak, they call the, the Kandak, it's like a battalion of commandos. And each company would be on a different cycle. So green cycle, you're running operations. Uh, red cycle it's like you're just doing tasking same as what we do taskings or you're on leave or you're going to schools or whatever and then amber cycles like training okay so we ran um the green cycle ops and we ran um well we ran everything but primarily my buddy and i um and my team sergeant we did most of the green cycle ops training or uh missions it was a pretty good time yeah it was i had a, I had a great time man i had a my team started, he's actually contracting now um, in Afghanistan. He was, um, he's, uh, was on like a kind of a legendary free fall team, a second battalion, third group. Um, just been pipe hitting and gunfighting, you know, since like 2002. <laughs> um, and he was kind of a very, um, I would say like very calm under fire. Like he was very used to it, which, which helped out a lot in making some sound decisions. Um, pretty good captain. Pretty good uh, chief. Um, everyone, everyone on my team was solid. You know, like I look back at it and like at the time, there was a lot of dudes I was frustrated with and thought they could do more um, and be better soldiers than they actually were. And they were kind of a little high and mighty on themselves a little bit because that team I went to had been in a lot of shit in the last you know five six years. Um, but I think they were a little little high on themselves and they should have been. Um, but overall, it was a, it was a good experience. You know, what was it like for you going from? I mean, basically a year worth of training, all the yeah. schools, and then, you know, the long, long haul in the Q course, uh, and then, you know, PSD to all of a sudden you're, you're doing ops in, you know, the Eastern part of Afghanistan. Was that a seamless transition? Did everything kind of apply? Yeah, I felt, I felt good, man. Yeah. I felt, um, I felt good. I think that, um, I've always had, I don't know if it's just from fighting and kind of like the warrior culture, like my mother being Indian, like. Um, my mom used to say all the time, like, today's a good day to die. Like, that's how you should feel when you go into war. Yeah. And that's like an old, like, warrior saying. And uh, I just took it like that, man. I've always been really aggressive. Okay. Sometimes it got me in trouble, you know, like sure. in a cute course. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, like, guys on my team saw that right away. And they were like, they loved it, you know. They were like, Jesus, like, Jeremiah ain't scared of shit, you know. Like, yeah. And um, 
I just really live that. Like, every day is a good day to die, and I'd rather just take it to them and just be aggressive as fuck than sit back and be a little hesitant, you know? Sure. So I was always the guy that would be like, yeah, fuck it, I'm taking a squat, and I'm fucking flanking, dude. Like, yeah. let's get it. Um, so, I mean, I had a... Like I said, I had I had a good, I had a really good, I, I think it was pretty seamless. I think I also brought a lot to the table when it came to like what I was exposed to being in that PSD world from all the briefings and this and that and understanding country and understanding how all the dynamics of, of uh, the politics worked in that country to how it affects, you know, each province we're going to and these different things. So I had a, I had a really good experience that first year and, and group was, you know, entirely in Iraq or excuse me, in Afghanistan, which was really cool. Well, was there any negative impacts from spending a year in country like that? No, I, no. I, I thought I was fine. Like right when I got back, I um, I started training for Best Ranger. I kind of like <laughs> looked for a partner. I found a dude named Chris Carlson, fucking stud, kind of legend, legendary like dive team guy. Mm-hmm. He ended up being the sergeant major of uh, Key West and dive school. Okay. Um, me and him trained together, and we went did Best Ranger and. Took shade a bunch of years off my life. <laughs> <laughs> was it pretty brutal? Oh, it was fucking horrible, man. Yeah. Um, we we made some training mistakes, and I think this is like the biggest part that I pull on now, like coaching, like in that tactical uh, or, or kind of like first responder space mm-hmm. as a as a strength and conditioning coach, is the overuse injuries are okay. so easy to get into with guys, and a lot of guys that are in great shape or you think are studs, they don't make it through a course or don't make it through a selection or something. You're like, what the hell happened? A lot of times it's just overuse, which comes from, you know, it could be uh, your running form. It could be the way your, um, you know, your over tightness in certain muscles and then it kind of pulls on this and that and you're not taking care of yourself properly. And um, 2014 is when I had best ranger and that's kind of before the whole like, foam rolling and mobility and like all this crazy gadgets and everyone knows about <laughs> yoga and all this stuff now. Right. Um, so we had some overuse issues, both of us going in and I ended up tearing a tendon in my foot. Uh, so we didn't perform as well as we wanted to. Um, but I pull from that a lot, you know, now as a coach and I think it was a great experience. Um, I had a lot of, uh, it was the first time in my life I ever failed at something. Okay. Um, like, for me, like not winning is failing. Yeah. And I think that like, it was very humbling for me to be in that position and be injured and have to be like, fuck dude, like I, I I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy, like I'm not it. Um, but everybody was just like, no one was angry. No one was like, everyone just gave me so much support, which I thought was really cool, especially yeah. in the soft community. Dudes were just like, dude, you're a fucking badass. Like you did fucking best ranger. Like you did that, you know? So like, we didn't finish where we wanted to or didn't get where we go, but it was like, hey, like, no one knocked it or no one was like disappointed in it, you know? Yeah. Which I thought was cool. Um, and then right after Best Ranger, um, I had uh, like a workup to go to deployment again to Afghanistan. And basically, um, they brought a guy, it was kind of like when 4th Battalions were transitioning out of being a regular battalion into what they are now. And we had another guy that was at E7 that came to my team. And he had been on like three ODAs in fourth battalion because of like not anything bad he did, but like he went to a team and they were like supposed to go to Afghanistan, but they didn't. And they asked for volunteers for another team that was going to Afghanistan. So he transferred and then they didn't end up going. So then he they <laughs> disbanded fourth battalion. So now he's on our team. He's another Echo, E7, 18 Echo. He used to be an RI. He's a fucking stud. Um, so. 
basically like they were like, hey, Sergeant Major's like, I need to send one of you guys to one one. And I was on um one three at the time. And I was like, fuck, dude, I don't want to go to another team, you know, but I just felt like it was like if I fuck over Rodriguez like this, like he's gonna have all these weird NSOERs. Like he's such a good kid, he's such a stud, man. Um, I'll do it, you know. Like I, I wasn't on that. T- I was training for Best Ranger, and I, and I really wasn't on that team for you know, um, you know, a couple months basically just to train. So I was like, yeah, that's no problem. Uh, the new team sergeant they were bringing in, I had met him through some mutual buddies about because he did Best Ranger. He was all three seven five kid. Um, just a fucking stud, you know, like one of those like silver star fucking just badass dude, man. <laughs> um, his name is Nick Tuttle. He's a sergeant major down in Hawaii now, and uh, he runs like the unit that finds like the body, like the the soldiers. You know, go they go f- try to find the soldiers from old wars oh. in Vietnam and South Korea and stuff like that. So Damn. he runs that unit now. But um, anyway, uh, I met him and I knew who he was, and they're like Nick Tuttle's taking over, and I was like, oh fuck yeah, I'll go to that team. So um, we went, I ended up going to that team, and um, basically, like, it was me, Nick, and uh, an 18 Fox that was, like, just this old, crusty, legendary, like, kind of level. He's, a, he's now he's a civilian instructor at the uh, ASO, level three ASO course, but he's just a boss, man. Um, and then everyone else was x-rays, brand new x-rays. Really? Yeah, we went to uh, Safawak together. We all went to Safawak, and then we deployed to Iraq okay. in 2015. To Iraq? Yeah, to okay. Iraq. And that was by far my best deployment I've ever been on. Um, we were kind of in the perfect storm where we were like on Title 22 on the base and Title 10 off the base. So it was like we could drink and hang out and be like fucking, you know, like uh, like we worked for the State Department mm-hmm. while we were on the base. And then we left the base. Like we carried guns and we go, can go on ops, you know. Yeah. So um, I basically, you know. It was was just a really good time, really good team, really good time. Um, But then at that time, my mom was really sick. So uh, the group command team came to visit us. And my team sergeant kind of knew what's going on with my mom and was tracking it. And and I was like, hey, you cool with me? Like a sergeant major asked me, like, he's like, no, don't hold shit back. He knows, he he knew Brian Murray too. He worked for him and he knew I had a good relationship with him from my last, you know, couple years in Afghanistan with him. So he was like, well, if he says anything, you know, do what you got to do. So Sergeant Major was like, hey, you know, what can I help your, well, how can I help your family? And I was like, is there a way that I could go to 10th group? My mom can get like medical marijuana and do everything in Colorado, but I can still be like operational. I don't have any of this issue. So he's like, yeah, dude, I do that shit all the time. And he was saying like a guy actually just, uh, his wife got hit by a car when she was jogging and got killed. His family's from Florida, so he moved him to seventh group. Like okay. he's like, do that. He's like, not a problem. So he's like, when do you want to go? You want to go right now? I was like, no, no, I want to finish this deployment. Yeah. So I was literally on like three emails between like him, the tenth group sergeant major, and like the first special forces command sergeant major. Like, hey, I got a dude. Needs to change. Blah blah. He's a stud. That's yeah. kind of the email. And then the last email was like, S one cut him his orders. So that's how I ended up switching from third group to tenth group. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So. uh when you got to Colorado, was CBD on your radar yet? Um, for your mom, anyway? For my mom, I would say not necessarily CBD. We were just like, hey, medical marijuana itself. Because for pain killers and stuff, it was like, my mom did the best on marijuana versus if she was trying to take a bunch of other pain meds. Yeah. And really, um, my mom had rheumatoid arthritis and she's been in her like mid-30s. And if you watch like the commercials on like Humera or whatever, they always end with like, 
you know, like, oh, immune system shit, right? And it's like all these warnings. And it's terrible for you, man. Like, yeah. my mother's immune system was just destroyed from being on drugs for rheumatism, for rheumatoid arthritis, where she got to the point where, like, she was getting every autoimmune disorder you could think of. Like, she had Guillain-Barre disease. She had um, lupus. It was just this onslaught of just, like, her immune system was just so screwed. Mm. Um, so we didn't necessarily look at, like... Uh, CBD yet it was more just like marijuana once we got into Colorado itself then mm -hmm. it was like oh like you know you see CBD you see marijuana you see what's going on so I think that's kind of the start for me <coughs> when it comes to CBD and marijuana and then kind of full cycle with my mom it's like I don't like pills or any medications because of what it did to my mother okay so it's like growing up like very holistic it's like you know all everyone loves um, kombucha now drinks kombucha it's like my mom was growing that shit in the closet when i was like eight you know yeah. it's like mom's the og hippie yeah. so like um you know just native lady so it's like she didn't take any medicines or doing we didn't even as a kid you know we barely did that stuff it was like my dad you know his medical background we took like antibiotics if you needed it like strep throat or something but other than that we didn't take anything mm -hmm. and that's how my mom was too even with her medication but it just so happened no one really knew all those side effects for the rheumatoid arthritis medication. So, um, so kind of that, that overall, like she, she passed away two years ago and that's kind of what she, I guess like she didn't really have like a cause of death. It was like all these things, all these infections and crap. Um, but it was from just having zero immune system, uh, from taking all that medication. So, okay. Did, uh, did medical marijuana help improve those those years while you were in intensive? Yeah, I think that she um, was. It made her more comfortable. You know, okay. um, if we, I think we could have started something earlier. Yeah, it'd have been different. But since it wasn't, uh, you know, she probably started marijuana maybe like the last four years of her life. Okay. Versus like something more long term, I think yeah. it would have been better. You know, CBD marijuana, you know, twenty years ago probably would have been a, di a different out outlook on what happened. So. That sucks, man. It, uh, pharmaceuticals are a, a black hole, and we could probably go on and on. But oh, it's, seeing that side of it, man, I'm sure that was... Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's like now like you know, that I got out, it's like I have a lot of... I have 100%, I'm 100% you know, disabled from the VA. Um, a lot of issues, you know, TBI stuff and uh, frostbite, things like that. But I look at it, too, where it's like I try to stay as healthy as possible. Mm -hmm. And all the, it's like, all they do is just give you medication. Yeah. And it's like, all the, like, I literally have like 20 bottles of pills, mm -hmm. like opiates and gabapentin and, you know, like just the worst shit. And you're like, there's no way you could take, like, if I, if I took all the stuff they prescribed me, I would, I'd be a fucking zombie, dude. Yeah. Like it, it, it's so crazy. It's like, they do that. And then there's like this alternative where it's like, I literally take CBD, like it's a vitamin, like morning and night. And I eat, uh, I eat an edible. I smoke every now and then recreationally, like a little bit. Most of the time, 90% 90, 90 of the time, I eat an edible in the evening, like 8 o'clock at night. About the time the kids go to bed. So by the time it starts to kick in and I'm feeling sleepy and I, I use Indica to go to sleep, um, I'm like feeling great. I sleep amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't have like all these sleep issues and up at night and all the crazy stuff I had before when I was in the army, yeah. you know, not able to use marijuana and CBD like that. So, um, I've just seen like an, an amazing 
difference in myself, my own body, you know, being almost 40 years old and having the career I had and how hard it was on my body, mm-hmm. but still being able to run like, you know, 50 to a hundred miles a week and like skiing and just like just having a blast with my kids and just being able to, to not be completely broken, you know? Yeah. How, uh, how long have you been on that kind of, that dose of the combination between the two? Um, so when I started terminal leave, I started, um, basically like I'd already been using, um, broad spectrum CBD with like TAC free stuff. Yeah. Terminally, I started full spectrum. Okay. And then like the day I got out of the army, I yeah. just, you know, did like the smokers, you know, like I spent <laughs> like a week just getting blazed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just to have fun with it, you know, just kind of experiment with, with like what, what types of different strains or do I like edibles better? Do I like smoking better? Whatever. Um, and, uh, ever since then, you know, since January, I'd basically just been like, I really like the edible, like the body high that it gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, I almost think it's almost like cheating, like as an athlete taking CBD and using marijuana. It's like my body recovers so fast now. Yeah. Like how sore I am or like aches and pains. Like I use it for pain management. I use it for inflammation. Mm-hmm. Just kind of this all encompassing like overall health, you know, that it's given me. Um, is just phenomenal, man. Like yeah. I, I, I can't even explain like how how amazing it is. It's it's definitely life changing. Like I've always been able to be in good shape and and ruck and run and compete and and do things, um, do ski races or what have you. But um, but now, I mean, I feel so much more confident in my abilities. I don't have to take Motrin or baby myself and be worried about all this overuse stuff. Yeah. Um, I just stretch stretch properly and, and yoga and ice baths and sauna and stuff and CBD man marijuana when you were getting out uh, had you had experiences seeing other dudes get out and sort of you know go down quick or or take that leap mm-hmm. off that cliff were you conscious of of getting out and the mindset and the body and all that stuff yeah man um, I know I knew there was going to be a uh, a big gap in like stimulus Mm-hmm. You know, not being on ODA, not being a team sergeant, not being, you know, like just all the things, be around the dudes, you know, having like this coping mechanism for what's going on around you. So I knew going to that, one of the ways I cope with a lot of things that I like to do those, like I'll, I'll just get out and run, you know, like 30 miles or I'll just go do something where it's like, I like to put my head and my body in a space that like hurts, like it sucks. Yeah. And those kind of things just make me feel like, I'm good, like I'm alive, everything's fine. Um, I like to do hard things. Mm. And I don't know, I think that's just kind of one of the ways I cope. Um, I've been in like really, really fortunate situations where like starting prior to me getting out with the Green Bay Foundation, um, I reached out to them and I got a briefing they came and kind of helped with medical and I reached out to them and they helped me with like all my medical stuff, transitioning and saying like, hey, this injury here, is when you're 50 like you could be like fucked up from this forever so like when you go to the va these are the things we need to talk about humble yourself don't be like oh yeah i'm fine like you're not fine bro like you did this to your ankle your neck you broke your neck you did this you that so it's like okay well i need to you know uh take care of my body and and be in that space so i was already kind of like sweet green gray foundation helped me out so much um i was able to kind of like have people around me that did that Mm-hmm. Um, where I felt, you know, fine. And then um, I met the guys from um, Clandestine Media Group. 
uh, you know, like I said, former Green Beret. Um, he owns a media company basically shooting products, you know, tactical space, whether it's like communication devices, knives, guns. Uh, and they only use like soft guys as their models, if you will. Um, though all those guys is like when I'm out with them and being around them, it's like being on ODA again. Okay. You know, I have, yeah, they're taking pictures and photography or making videos and stuff, but it's just the same type of environment um, where um, you have a bunch of soft dudes just interacting, talking shit and having fun. And we're shooting on the range, you know, or they're videoing us, you know, doing drills or moving through a house or I get to interact with like SWAT cops or regular police officers come and we do things together. So I think it's been a, a, they, that, those people itself, just the guys from clandestine and, and, um, the kind of the family outside of family that I met through them has Mm. helped me cope as well. And being around good people, solid dudes that, that get it, that understand on the, let me be stupid and talk shit and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, tell stupid stories and shit. So we have a really good time. And I think that's helped out a lot. Before we move on to anything else, uh, what CBD do you use? Oh, I use Uncana. Okay. Yeah, what I, what kind of drew you to them or what, what makes their product a little bit different? Because, I mean, you can go into a gas station and you yeah, can see this little bottle of CBD, for sure. right? And some people, uh, and it's not that they're they're dumb or anything, but they see twenty four ninety nine and they're like, oh, yeah. well, I could get CBD here for 20 bucks, But when I look on Uncana's website, it's 150 Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand that difference. Yeah. So, um... I think the big thing about Uncana itself was just kind of how I, how I kind of like ran into um, Kobe and his wife um, and, you know, sat down and talked to them. And it, it basically was like, I always wanted to be that guy who's like a pay it forward kind of guy. Yeah. And the veteran community, as soon as I talked to him and just what he was doing, he shared his story about where he was at after transitioning and like why he was in and like the things he dealt with. And I didn't, I've never dealt with like a mental, um, you know, like no PTSD. Like I'm very fortunate. I don't, I don't have a bunch of uh, kind of that mental side of things, right? I do know I'm hard to get along with. I have like all the other kind of <laughs> weird things that go along with, you know, uh, with um, anxiety and um, just kind of that op tempo, you know, and the kind of A type personality yeah. that I think kind of drives everyone to that job field, right? Or makes you good at that job field. Um, so it was basically like, well, I looked at the CBD that was out there and it was like, everything was like really overpriced or way underpriced. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that's like, for me, I was like, well, what's the difference? And I kind of did my own research. And a lot of that research was just going through the uncanny website. It's like, you can go to like uh, a competitor's website and they don't tell you shit about CBD. Whereas I go to Uncana's and it's like, you could stay on that website for hours. just like reading about you know, this scientist, this, this doctor, this, like, and it's actual facts. It's not like we think this or maybe yeah. so. And then it shows that like, you can see exactly where he's getting his CBD from, like where it's grown from, uh, just the transparency in that. And then being a veteran owned business, mm-hmm. um, if you go to like that 2499 stuff at, at you know, Seven Eleven, like they might not even have a website. <laughs> if they do, it's like, yeah. it's just pro- like, it doesn't say anything. Um, so I think it was just that, like knowing what I was putting into my body, I wanted to take part in a company that was like, and I was like, wow, this is really dope. Not only is it veteran owned, but like this dude, they know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. Um, so then I tried their supplements. I tried the uh, CBD 
they just have phenomenal results with it, you know, mm-hmm. way better than the, like, I think we were buying like some bullshit gummies, you know, from Amazon or something <laughs> and, uh, just had a crazy different experience with it and was like, wow, I'm sleeping better, like less anxiety. I'm not edgy. I'm not fucking like want to punch everybody in the face. Like it was just immediate kind of like just that the biggest thing was like sleeping. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. And then I, then I started comparing prices to something that may be equivalent and it's like uncanny is still like a hundred dollars cheaper than like, you know, the competitor, I don't want really to say their names, but there's a bunch of companies and it's like now with social media space and everything else, it's like, there's all these athletes like promoting CBD, right? It's like, yeah, well you'll promote anything that someone pays you to promote. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know if those CBDs work or whatever, but I know their price points are really expensive. Mm-hmm. And I know that Kobe does so much for the veteran community, for the law enforcement community, trying to, um, just introduce CBD to the public and make it where it's not the devil's lettuce or yeah. make it where it's like, Hey, this is a, like an all natural supplement that actually helps people. Um, and then again, just the amount of research and the amount of facts that's available to you when you look at the uncanny website or you listen to a podcast with Kobe or you read something he posts or whatever. It's, a night and day difference between other CBD companies. Um, and then I think just being proud of that, you know, like the, then it, how easy, how quick it changed me. And I, I, I was on all this medication before, like I was on so much shit and now I'm not on anything. Yeah. And, uh, that's fucking awesome, dude. It yeah. Really, it's, really it's crazy. And yeah. then like, uh, and then just how it works, like the CBD salve, that uncanny salve, it's like, if you never use it, and I tell people, I'm like, it's magic. They're like, <laughs> it can't be that good. I'm like, I'm telling you, man, Something that hurts, you put it on it and it's gone. And you're like, what the fuck? I'm not in pain anymore. Um, And now, like, you know, I'm an athlete for Uncana, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm super stoked and proud to do um, to just grind and try to. I'm not even a badass athlete, man. I'm just try hard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I look at it too as like my age, my job experience, my injuries, and being able to do the things I can do. in the ski racing world or running world or just kind of adventures in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a professional uh, hunting guide. So it's like just to be my age, you know, 40 years old and have the career I did with the injuries I've had and now be able to compete at the level I am, mm-hmm. that's completely 100% due to the fact that like, yes, I train smart and I take care of my body, but I'm taking care of my body through using CBD and eating healthy and all, kind of a um, all-encompassing uh, factors into that. Mm-hmm. But the biggest one is definitely the CBD. Yeah, and it, he actually has a lot of information too. If you are still active or you're on a law enforcement agency, oh, yeah. Yeah, he can he can point you to the right product. Uh, it's not going to get you in any trouble. It's not going to you know oh, yeah. put you in harm's way as far as your career. And so uh, that's one thing I point to a lot of people in that direction too. Oh, absolutely. Or people, you know, they're scared. They don't want to use anything with THC in it. And I'm like, right. hey, that's fine. Like the broad spectrum, it works well. It's yeah. not as good, right. but it's still, it's a fucking amazing product. Like you're going to be happy with it. You're going to see a difference yeah. on it. Um, I drew, recently just got uh, all the guys on uh, Kind Design Media Group. They're all on, you know, on Canna. Yeah. Um, so, which is super cool. And they were all like, man, a huge difference in my sleep. Like I wasn't able to sleep. Now I can sleep, whatever. So, and if, if you're not, uh, so they have like an amazing discount if you're a law enforcement or if you're a first responder or a veteran, they have 30% discount. 
Um, if you're not one of those and you're listening, you can use my code booty cheeks uh, for 20% <laughs> off. Uh, I'll, uh, yeah, so I'll link that in the show notes yeah, too. Is so it just, it's all lowercase? It's, it's all uppercase, booty, all uppercase. booty cheeks. Yeah. Okay, cool. That'll yeah. get you 20% off for uh, the, yeah. Uncana products. Uncana's website and that code will be linked in the show notes. So you can just go down and click on that. Sweet. But uh, what's next for Jeremiah? Where are you going to, what's, what's on the horizon for you to shoot for as goals or what do you want to do next, man? Um, honestly, man, um, I'm in an amazing position because my wife has a great job. She's crushing it. She's uh, almost 10 years younger than me so that really helps out like as far as like me I did a career I didn't want to go longer than 20 because of my family situation sure and I look at it like my wife supported me through being you know deployments and the crazy stuff we did now it's my time to support her so um, I'm kind of odds and ends right now um, I do uh, like online strength conditioning my specialty is like the tactical space so um I pride myself on that overuse, uh, prevention injuries. Uh, like right now I'm, I'm 10 for 10 with guys for SPS and I'm uh, one for one with dudes to go into CAC selection. So, uh, I feel like I'm, I have enough experience and I'm pretty dialed in with where people's needs need to be at. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not making a ton of money and I'm not doing it to try to be some fitness, you know, enthusiast and make a bunch of money. Um, for me, it's more of kind of the pay it forward. Uh, the, the money I charge is basically just kind of like, enough to like kind of uh, pay for my time that it takes me to create programs and, and to coach guys. Um, so I do that and then, and, and kind of who knows where that's going to go. You know I mean? Sure. I might, I might try to elevate it a little bit. I got an assistant coach coming on board, um, next month that I'm pretty stoked about. Um, so I may see where that goes, you know? Um, but I'm also doing the L guide thing. So I'm going to, it's called, um, it's called green eyed, our guide course it's uh it's in uh dubois wyoming outside of dubois uh, i'm going to that from one july to the end of so it's two months and basically it's like um it's through a company called voag which is um it's called veterans outdoor uh advocacy group and they take veterans and try to help them like heal mental scars or physical scars in the outdoor community and teach them a skill set like fly fishing or whatever so they can get some relief and go out and do things with their family and and kind of pick up a new a new cool uh thing to do in the mountains or outdoors in general uh and they're paying completely for my course okay. and what this is doing is basically giving me like international and all of the uh certificates and qualifications i need to be able to work not only in the united states but in other countries as well which is super cool um, so I'm really excited about doing that and I'm actually doing a fundraiser for them now for Voag. Um, uh, there's a link in my Instagram bio for how you can donate, but I'm going to do, uh, not a race. I'm just doing like a mountain adventure. I'm going to run. It's about 25 miles. Could be a little bit more depending on the route, but, uh, it's called 10 peaks. It's from Frisco to Breckenridge and it's basically just kind of just ascend up peak one and stay on the ridge line all the way South into Breckenridge. Um, pretty cool route. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, That's a long ass ways. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, doing that for them and hopefully we can raise a little bit of money to kind of, again, pay it forward to the next veteran who can either go to a guide course or, you know, go to a, a ski course or whatever they, you know, all these different things that they offer. Um, excuse me. So I'm, I'm stoked about that. And like the biggest thing for me now is I've been able to be in positions to do fundraiser events. And when I say I'm an athlete, I think 
I use that term loosely. Um, I'm not a professional athlete by any means, but I do want people to know my name when I go to races, you know? Yeah. So um, trying hard, trying to compete. Uh, last year I did the Grand Traverse for the Green Bay, or excuse me, for the Special Forces uh, uh, Foundation. And this year I was supposed to do it for the Green Bay Foundation. And uh, obviously kind of COVID and all the other stuff canceled a bunch of races. And, and that's a 40-mile uh, uh, backcountry ski race. So it's kind of it's point to point from Crested Butte to Aspen. And that's like my, um, my passion now. You know, I love that sport of ski mountaineering ski yeah. and, and ski mo racing. So I'm going to try to really push hard this year. Um, my workout plan is basically like I'm going to this guide course. I'll be in the mountains the whole time you know, humping around and, and maneuvering out there. So, you know, I'll stay in shape doing that and then basically go right into hunting season and then right into ski racing season. So I, I think I have a pretty good workup plan to be able to uh, get really competitive mm -hmm. and uh, in that ski racing world. And uh, we'll see what happens on this, this year at the next uh, Grand Traverse. I'm hoping I, uh, it doesn't get canceled. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're going to crush it. But uh, when did you sign out on, on terminal leave? Uh, in October of 2019 <laughs> so what's it what's it been like man with all this crazy shit happening like your first year as a civilian it, is it is it discouraging is it not that big of a deal um, to you i i'm not gonna say it's not a big deal it's i look at my time in the military and i think like i think it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of like two sides of this subject so like the first off covid i think like if we address that i think that it's a lot of fear mongering and like in the very beginning, like people were scared and we needed to shut down and we figured these things out. Right. And then I'm not a super political guy and I could, and, but I look at it like our country is so divisive right now. It's like, if you're a Republican, they're like, think you're racist and this and that. If you're a Democrat, it's like, you're, it's just so weird. And it's like most people in our society are, are like right in the middle and they lean a little bit left, a little bit right, depending on like social ideas, right? Like, yeah, I'm a Christian and I feel that I'm more conservative, but like, I also don't care what you do. Like run with scissors, bro. Yeah. You want to get married to a dude, like do your thing. I don't care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's like, that's something you have to live with. Like me and my faith, like I, I don't, I'm not living with that. Like I'm not doing those decisions. You want to get an abortion? Like you have to live with that abortion, not me. So I look at it like that. So I'm not necessarily like, like on this ultra right or, or like just very liberal stuff. I think both ends of the spectrum have these weird nuances where it's like safe spaces are really weird and we're getting really weak as society. But then on the other side, it's like, like you on your farm with all your guns, like you, you don't get city life and you don't understand the nuances and dynamics of lots of culture in a small space. Right. So with the COVID thing, I look at the media as just like this stoking the fire and this outrage because the media is like dominated by left wing, uh, obviously. And then it's like they just want the president to fail, which I look at as like no matter who the president is, like I never, why would you want the president to fail? Like, and that means we're setting up our country for something negative. So whether it's Obama or Trump or whoever, like we should be supportive of them. And, and I think that a lot of just the fake news, I would say like a good term, like it is fake. Like you're, you're just receiving all this information. You don't know what's right, what's wrong. Uh, things don't make sense. Yeah. Like with COVID where it's like, okay, so you're telling me this plexiglass is between me and this 
the guy, the, the cashier is checking me out for all my groceries, but she's touching all the groceries. <laughs> and like, I can take them all home, yeah. but like, I have to wear a mask. And it's, it's just, it's just really weird. And there's no information about taking care of your immune system or what is right. Uh, one person says, you know, be outside. The next one says no. And then all of a sudden, New York City's all fucked up because everyone's inside. Like, it, I think there's just not enough proper information. And instead of fear-mongering, and when you look at statistics, it's like, all right, man, we shut the country down for a disease that kills, you know, 0.2% of the population and the average age of death for COVID is 84. Like, okay. I'm also on the other side of that. I'm also native. So it's like, I know that my brothers and sisters in the Navajo Indian Reservation got hit so hard. There's places with no running water there. Um, obviously, like alcoholism and obesity and all the underlying factors have a, a thing to play, especially in my in the Native American community. Indians, you know, a lot of them, you know, just don't have um, very poor. Uh, they don't take care of themselves. A lot of alcoholism, so it's going to affect it more there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying the disease is fake. But the other side, to me, it's like, it is fake. It's like, it's over. Open everything back up. Right. Like, whatever. We're fine. Uh, And then going right into, like, COVID to, like, what's going on now, it's like, my my thing, what I try to tell people is that perception is reality. So if your perception on something is one way and my perception is the other way, there's two different realities there. Yeah. My fighting position is different from your fighting position. What you see and what enemy you're engaging in your fighting position may not be what I see and I'm engaging from my position. So I look at it as like, it's hard because a lot of people, and I say a lot of people, I would say people that aren't black, right? I'll just kind of go and dive down that one. That aren't black, it's easy to pull up statistics and say, well, this many cop interactions, like this only certain percentages dying like more white people are getting killed by cops than black people and and there's a lot of statistics and a lot of like facts that you that you can say when you outline it right so it's easy to say well this doesn't make sense but then if you talk to um and not even like a liberal i'm talking like christian very conservative black family they have a different outlook on it like they are um scared of the police at times and they do have this outlook so it's hard to like bring all these facts to light and say these things when I think both sides need to come together and find their common ground. And that common ground is, yes, the black community needs to do more for the black community. Like we don't have Martin Luther Kings anymore. We don't have, it's like, who are we looking up to, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and there is some responsibilities to go there, like Black Lives Matter, but I also agree with like what's going on in Chicago or Baltimore or St. Louis. And all these kids are dying from gangs and all this other stuff, but no one's really shedding light on that. And for guys like us that spent, you know, time in the military, it's so much, our perspective on those things, I think, are so much different because the military forces you to be around all walks of life. Mm-hmm. Even if you're the same color, you're not the same walk of life. Because if you're from Nebraska and you're from a farm boy from Nebraska and you're white and you meet a uh, you know, a kid from a surfer kid from Cocoa Beach, Florida, like you're not the same. (laughs) Your experiences and what you know is so much different. And the military is so cool because to me, that's like my America. And that's where I think like America needs to be at. And I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist in the military and guys haven't had their share of, you know, shitty jokes or whatever, you know, but 
um, it also allows you to to experience different walks of life and have like just the coolest of buddies and friends of people that you if you just stayed in Nebraska you would never meet you know this like weird black dude from the Bronx that raps all the time and makes up songs and you're like what and you know you just have these cool funny stories and relationships with people so I think like America needs to be more like how the military is not saying it's perfect at all no no but Again, like not condoning like rioting or the, the craziness, but I also look at it like if you perceive that cops are out to get you and these other things, there has to be some kind of reality to that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when you look at numbers and facts, you're know, like, actually, no, most cops are doing the right thing and trying to be, you know, they're all par- their their fathers, their husbands, their their wives, their mothers, you know, like. I think the vast majority are very good in their community. They love their city. They love their community. And then you just have a couple bad apples. And it definitely makes this dynamic and nuance. And not to be conspiracy theory, but like what's going on in the news, it's like the media, again, feels the fire. They don't talk about. Um, so like last night on the news, on local news in Denver, there was a cop, high patrolman, who a lady was pulled over. Her kid was like unconscious. The cop like pulls the kid out of the car seat, gets the baby to breathe again, and it's a it's a black mother with a, a black daughter. Now it's like a year later, this cop and his wife are the godparents to this little girl, okay. and it's just like a such a dope story. Yeah, and it happens to be a white cop with a black you know goddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that's like the army. That's like the military. I know that's the America. I know. Yeah. So I think that a lot of times we don't. The media doesn't focus on that. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, not to be conspiracy theory, but I definitely think that there's like anarchists and, you know, other uh, people at play here when it comes to the rioting and the, the um, just the overall, like, let's be anti-cop, right? It's yeah. like you're burning down Austin, Texas, and it happened in Minneapolis. Like, yeah. I think anybody who watches that video is like, what in the fuck is going on? Like, the the term conspiracy theorist, man, like I think we just got to throw that shit out because yeah. we're getting to a point where there's more shit that's untrue on on the news than there is oh, often. But yeah, we're calling people that challenge the news conspiracy, conspiracy theorists. theorists. Yeah. Like that term is just horseshit. And the other thing that I think, uh, like you were talking about, and I've said this to a lot of people lately, the one thing about the military where it allows those cultures and races to work together yeah. uh, for a common goal is we always had the ability to be honest with each other. We always had the ability to talk freely for the most part, as long as you weren't being derogatory or disrespectful. But the thing about it in the army is we never tried to hide the fact that we were different. You know, like everybody brought it up. We we could talk about it openly. And I think that's one thing that the news is sort of stoking the fire. Like you said, where they're, they don't want you to say something or you're going to be labeled a racist and you don't want that. But, you know, I wish we could bring some sort of element that we had in the military where you can talk about that stuff. You can, hey, we're different, but we're cool. You yeah. know what I mean? No, I agree. I think that, I think that it's, it's weird to see social media. Like, my social media, people I follow, and I think my followers are kind of like 50-50 between, like, um, you know, former or current soft guys or, or people who like that community, you know, spend time in the military – all the way to like I have a lot of like really hippie skier friends you know because of the community I'm in and what I do you know as a passion for skiing and being in the mountains Um, but it's weird to see like this like 
white privilege stuff and like all this shit and you're just like dude like all the people i know like don't like i'm not saying that doesn't exist like i don't i don't you know i don't know but but it's like i think right now on social media there's a lot of just hot air it's yeah. a lot of like let me post about white privilege because i'm white and i get to ride my fucking yeti in Vail, colorado because yeah. i'm white it's like it's not why you get to ride it yeah. but at the same time like you're just posting shit to fucking post hot air yeah. like are you doing anything like if you really want to do something then why don't you go to fucking you know drive 100 miles east to denver and work with some nonprofit that takes kids from low-income housing whether they're white black Spanish, mexican whatever yeah. out to go ski like yeah. there's plenty of people doing those kinds of things and i think that it's just kind of popular and social media is like the ultimate like kind of fake you know like <laughs> you can shoot on the range and to be a fucking range ninja and do 30 takes and post your one good take yeah yeah or you could post all of it and show your mistakes and you know and i think it's just it's just easy to um act like you're doing something right now mm -hmm. because it's like popular you know yeah, sure. and i think that like i i do agree with that i like what you said about the conspiracy theorist that you know just kind of take that out because I, I feel like it's so untrue but then at the same time i also want to give credit or not necessarily give credit but like acknowledge the fact that um i i do have so many friends that are that are african-american that i met in the military or outside of the military that i do know from talking to them that they actually feel a certain way you know yeah. and my wife and i you know we have like dude i'm everyone range of life is sex and danger dude i have four kids yeah. you know by my life is all crazy but i have um and i have two boys that are black that yeah. are mixed and i i don't look at them any different we don't we but i do feel that like because it it is a reality to friends of mine that it is something that i owe my sons to like acknowledge the fact that like you need to be very respectful and you need to say yes sir no sir to police officers and i think that that's where it goes for me where both sides need to accept that there's an issue there that white america if you will or police i guess because they're all considered white right even though a city like atlanta georgia or cleveland or baltimore like everyone's african-american like all the cops that work there yeah. like their majority you know it's it's black run cities black owned cities which is awesome right but for some reason when you say police officer it's like you assume like this white bald skinhead dude yeah. or for whatever reason that's kind of like for me that's like what the media is portraying right versus like when i was stationed in atlanta and especially being an mp we worked with swat all the time and guys and i i met a lot of like a majority of those dudes are black they're all you know black guys who you know are cops mm -hmm. um so i think that the term police officer is it's they're just people in their community and they're just the people of the community yeah. and like i said there has to be some kind of middle ground between both sides where like it's not just you feeling uh you know like all oh, cops are out to get you right and then cops can't just say like we're not out to get you but you still feel a certain way there's be a little bit of middle ground and then everybody needs to accept responsibility for actions that actually happen right yeah. like you need to accept responsibility for what's going on in the inner city and you know defunding police and shit is not the answer like obviously more training you know and things like that but and that's definitely a very deep hole you can go down and what's going on in our community but i feel that like for me and guys like that have had a career like mine 
you spend so much time in other countries, years in other countries, fighting for another country or with that. And I take pride in that. And I do think that soft needs to be all over the world, fucking killing bad people. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to do it here. But I also don't like the fact that we spend so much money for these long ass wars and things that don't really have an outcome mm-hmm. in this industrial military complex when we could like take care of Chicago and Baltimore or, you know, like the, like the Sioux nation in South Dakota or West Virginia, like, or the opium crisis that's going through the rust belt. I think that that's for me. When I look back on my career, that kind of part sucks where you're like, damn, like I did all this for all these other dudes, but like, now our country right now because of you know whatever's going on is kind of this weird upside down when there's all this money and resources we probably could have put in a different way yeah you know so that's kind of weird well these you know these catchphrases too that don't have a definition uh one of the ones i'll use is uh, systemic racism it's hard to put your finger on that and so it allows social media to just pump that hot air with these undefined words um as far as like domestic versus international operations i mean yeah i I could go down that rabbit hole for hours on end about, you know, all the shit we waste over there versus what we could be doing over here. And, I, you know, maybe we're feeling the effects of that now. You know, maybe yeah. maybe we're starting to, you know, reap a little bit of that reward that we didn't put the time and investment and resources here uh, that we did internationally. And now, look, we can't, you know, it's almost yeah. out. It's getting to the point where it's out of control. But I know I just I was thinking about it on my drive over here, man. Your first year as a civilian has been a wacky one. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely been definitely been weird, man. I. But it's been fun. I mean, I, I think um, COVID stuff, kind of being a lockdown. I mean, I don't know. Like, everything happened for a reason. Like, I think, like, especially with kind of the internet coaching. And I already had athletes and I was coaching before. And then it made me a better coach because I had, like, let's say if you're one of my athletes and you're paying me money to write your program and, and help you. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden you don't have access to a gym. So I'm like, well, what do you have at your house? I'm like, go find a big ass rock. You got a rucksack. You got a big rock. You got this. You got that. So it helped me, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as a coach for sure. Um, and then you know, family time with the kids and yeah. my basic like home. I was a homeschool teacher, you know. Yeah. I had, uh, my son, um, you know, helping him with his schoolwork and doing everything on the computer. And um, it really wasn't too different for our household in that a- aspect you know mm-hmm. other than like we usually every weekend we're kind of like out in the mountains or hiking or skiing or something so that definitely you know <clears throat> was taken away for a while but uh you know other than that i, I don't know it, and it's weird I, it is definitely weird i i don't know what the answer is with the covid thing and i don't know what the answer is with the like you said the term systemic racism i i like to think that what I know in my background in the military is what America really is. Mm-hmm. And that there's these like fringes of hot air and smoke being pushed by the media to make it uh, a little more than it is. You yeah. know, the only thing I do say is that I think that there definitely has to be a middle ground and both sides need to accept the fact that like both sides are a little bit right. Sure. If you're a little bit right on your facts, and you're a little bit right on your perception of police. Like, otherwise you wouldn't feel that way. And we need to find out where that education is coming from. What kind of education, where are they getting this anti-police sentiment? Mm-hmm. And where is middle-class America getting this 
like pro-police sentiment. And I think that that needs to kind of be, I, I look at it not as like a, a racial thing, honestly. I think from being in other countries and being in the military, like I said, for us, I just think like being around another race is just normal. Yeah. But I look at it more as like social economics. Yeah. I look at like, you know, if you're poor, you're not getting the same thing as rich people get. Sure. And then, so that's kind of why I look at it. Yeah. More of a social, social economic standing, social standing things, not necessarily. Um, there's there's 2,095 billionaires in the world. They're worth 80 trillion. The rest of us together aren't worth 80 trillion. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's, the socioeconomic thing is a real issue, and it's, you know, it's obviously not going to be brought up, but, I, you know, if I could preach two messages, and I, I think I've, I learned them both in the Army. The first one is two things can be true at once. There, yeah. two, two sides of the argument yes. can both be right. Yes. And then the second thing is, is that uh, disagreement doesn't mean hatred. You don't have no. to hate somebody because you disagree. And uh, I think if everyone would just take the approach on both those things, we'd probably be in a lot better place. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And that's kind of what I was trying to say. Just not, I'm not very articulate. I'm a strong major. <laughs> You're pretty, pretty articulate, man. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what your career goes like for, for the, being out in the civilian world and, and uh, you pushing CBD, man. I think that's so dope. Yeah, I think uh, guys like you are going to help crush the stigma, you know, because... Like you said, there's lots of people out there that think that they're gonna uh, be running naked in the street if they take CBD, you know? Yeah, I I have those questions all the time, you know? Like, people will ask me, if I take this, will I, you know, I don't wanna be like, I don't like how weed makes me hallucinate (laughs) or makes me, I'm like, dude, it doesn't do any, like, you won't, and I think it's kind of like the placebo effect. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm so relaxed, and I'm like, I gave you water pills, bro, (laughs) chill out. Like, you know what I mean? So I I think that, it definitely is a little bit of a stigma being in Colorado. Um, and for you here in Wyoming, you're so close to Colorado. I think that there's like a difference in the way marijuana products are viewed in different States mm-hmm. versus the way they're viewed in other States. Yeah. Um, I know that, uh, I have a buddy that works for, um, for, uh, one of the agencies and they allow them to use CBD now. Okay. Just recently, but basically, like the you know the the shit from their boss was like, hey, you piss hot, like it's still on you. Yeah. You need to be so, because right now DOD is like zero CBD period. Mm-hmm. So you're not supposed to even take broad spectrum, which has zero THC. There's nothing in it like at all. Um, so I think that that's kind of that definitely needs to change. And I think that you know I'll do whatever I can to try like, and that's why sometimes like on Instagram or whatever I'll try to post like show my medications or talk about it because like I just know that there's dudes that are in such a bad place right now mm-hmm. and a lot of that and going back on my mother and then my injuries and seeing the amount of medication I've been given for injuries that aren't even like to me like you don't even rate on the fucking spectrum as shit dudes are dealing with and they're taking all this crap and I'm like well it killed my mom and uh I stopped taking all meds and only use CBD and marijuana and I'm like normal. Yeah. So there has to be some kind of like, what can I do to help the next dude out? And if, even if it's just a guy getting out of the military and he's like, sees what I post or podcast or whatever. And it's like, Oh shit. Like this dude did it. Let me try it. Yeah. And I always think like, if you just try it and you, you will see the, the giant difference in quality of life and what it does for you. And we're probably on, you know, this weird track as a society of like making marijuana legal 
um, trying to figure out CBD. But of course, you know, obviously the DOD always has a knee jerk reaction to everything, right? And it's like all CBD, never, no way, like controlled substance. Controlled substance, and it's like okay, but I can drink my face off. Yeah, (laughs) and you know the. Everybody knows the suicide numbers, and uh, you know part of that to me. That's that's on the DoD too. You know, oh, yeah. like these are these are your guys that this is happening to, and you still got to do the work. I think sometimes that gets lost on people too. Yeah, uh, you gotta you gotta do the work to live healthy, and but CBD can help you. You know, the the thing that I try and make clear is that you could do the work and take pharmaceuticals, and you could still end up in some, oh, yeah. some shitty spots. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And it definitely isn't an end all be all. You know, it's, yeah. I think it's like. Because for me and the guys I know, um, like Kobe or like other buddies I know, um, they're physically fit. You know, they're working out, they're eating clean, they're eating good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have, I mean, I don't think I even have any friends or really know people that aren't, um, that don't do that kind of lifestyle, you know? Yeah. And um, I just think that that's part of it too. It's not like a one stop, take CBD. Good. You're good. Yeah. Like, no, you can't eat like fucking fat ass. Yeah. You can't eat fucking, uh, what are those tornadoes from 7 <laughs> Eleven? And, uh, call, monster. yeah, like, yeah. exactly. So, I definitely think that's part of it. And we definitely have like a caffeine and alcohol culture, you know, yeah. nicotine, caffeine, alcohol culture in the military. Um, you know, and there's, uh, one of my other buddies was talking about it, talking to me about it before, and it's like, there's no decompression time for guys. Mm-hmm. It's like you come back from deployment and it's like <clears throat> hours of getting off the plane, you're at a bar yeah. drinking a beer. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that beer tastes amazing and yeah. it's awesome. But yeah. at the same time, like that's accepted in our culture, right? Like the military, you go to balls or you do this, like all the things that we do, we have growlers and grogs and people are hammer drunk and it's yeah. just like, oh, just don't drive. But like, no one really cares if you're an alcoholic, mm. like that you're like a functioning alcoholic. That's okay. Yeah. But so I, I think that, and it's a depressant. So again, suicide rates. Um, I think the military in general needs to do a better job at taking care of its soldiers all the way around. Um, I haven't seen anything on, uh, you know, like social medias for the military, like the Marines, the Army, nothing. Like, you know, like about what's going on right now in our country. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, where's your leadership at? Like, you have black soldiers, you have this, you have white soldiers. Like, you have all these different components. And instead of like posting like every day a message of like unity and representing what the military is and how unified we are, regardless of background and diversity, we have people from other countries that become American citizens. And it's just such a cool story with the amount of culture that you have in the military. And they're not showing that. And I think that that's like a, like kind of goes along with like what's going on with the VA system. Like no one gives a fuck, dude. Yeah. You know, and where's our command at? Where's the army command at? Where's the Marine Corps command at when they talk about, you know, like what's going on. And I, I don't think they need to get political, but I think that they owe it to, um, they owe it to soldiers to be, to show where they stand and how unified we are as a country, as a fighting force. Um, and I just don't see that right now. And I think that's, I think that, is a good segue and way to tie into, you know, CBD and pharmaceuticals and life after the military and, um, everything's like cookie cutter, like get on this computer and fucking 
click next, 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 next. So you can, you know what I mean? Like complete yeah. your class. And it's like, no one cares. No one learns from that. Like, yeah. it's silly. Like, yeah. you know, and, and I know that's one of Kobe's big missions is to get the VA to, you know, to prescribe CBD when, oh, yeah, it's, when it's needed. And I think that would be a game changer. Oh, for sure. If, you know, if you took a hundred dudes from one unit and set 50 of them, to the VA and let them do the normal VA thing and then sent 50 of them and all they got was like vitamin D, CBD, and like a stern talking to, I'm <laughs> sure that other the 50 that was in the second group would do much better oh, than yeah. the first group. Oh, I believe that. And, and they know that too. You know, yeah. it's it's uh, it shouldn't be an uphill battle like it is for them. Well, I think it's just, without getting into a rabbit hole, like bureaucracy, politics, like you know, politicians being rich off of being politicians. Yeah. I think it's just part of the system. Yeah. It's just part of the system when it comes to the way bureaucracy is built, the way people get rich off of war. And mm-hmm. it's just another uh, kind of department of, you know, uh, the industrial military complex. Like big pharma is part of that because you have guys that go through this career or they deploy, if they're in for three years, you deploy for a year to Afghanistan and you're fucked up. You have this, you have that. Now all of a sudden you're part of that system for the rest of your life. You're dependent on pharmaceuticals, the VA doctors, their fucking system, you know? Um, So I think it's just, it's a huge problem and it's not going to fix itself without like legislation and different things but i do agree like cbd and just natural shit is the way to go like yeah. you don't need to be taking a bunch of crap there are medications i i'm sure there's guys out there that need certain medications you know yeah. but then again at the same time i'm sure there's guys who uh would do a lot better off without taking all those things and just dealing with neuropathy or headaches or whatever it is migraines and just using cbd and I, I know you're a humble dude but i do think that guys like you have the the power to change that uh guys see your career they see what you did and they're like well fuck if he's if he's cool with it then yeah. uh, you know i'll give it a shot or i'll listen I'll at least listen or look it up uh, i think guys like you that you know most guys that have served would look up to and, and be impressed by uh, when when you're out there being vocal about it and being transparent about it i think that's I mean, that's going to change way more than the bureaucracy or the, the policy ever could. Yeah, know? I think so, too. And that's why, I like, to be honest, um, like when I started Instagram, I'm not trying to be, like, insta-famous or anything. Uh, I did it because I was doing the fundraiser for the Green Bay Foundation. And I was like, well, shit, I got to try to get, you know, like, how can I get some attention on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the CBD thing, it's just, like, that's what I try to do more is, like, just kind of tell my story or be uh, – like you said, I do know that people look at me, um, hold me to a higher standard again because I, ha- I have done those things mm-hmm. and I hold myself to that higher standard. So I feel that if I could be the voice for something or help people out in any way, yeah. then then I'm doing something right. Um, I'm definitely not trying to be like, I don't do a podcast or try to do Instagram posts to like for likes. You know, I, mm-hmm. I do it for, even if like, I don't know, maybe the 50, 60 people that reach out to me about CBD that mm-hmm. are using it now because I had a post about it or whatever. Like, that's my goal. Like, I think it's awesome to, like, get text messages back or DMs back from people who are like, hey, I've been using CBD for a month. You know, I, I'm, like, hiking again and ride my mountain bike. Like, before I couldn't even, like, I wasn't sleeping. Like, my back hurt so bad I couldn't even drive. Like, just crazy stories that are out there mm-hmm. and like I'm on the receiving end of those and it's so cool and I just want to like continue to try to do that and be like hey man like 
it's not a, it's not going to ruin your life. You yeah. know, like you're not going to be a drug addict yeah. from yeah. toking it up a little bit and taking some CBD. Like you're going to be okay. And CBD kind of has the, like, I call it like the pre-workout effect. So like sometimes when you buy pre-workout, you'll work out more just cause you're like, well, I paid 40 bucks yeah, for that. Yeah, so yeah. I better go work out. CBD kind of has that same effect and like, as you're starting to take it, it'll motivate you to get out and find what you're passionate about or find what you, you know, you like doing. And that will make everything in your life a little bit easier. Yeah. I agree with that. I like that analogy. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, uh, you finding new passions too. I think people being able to follow your story this close to you getting out to, uh, how you sort of navigate this or what you get into or what you don't get into. Uh, I think that that helps too. So, you know, your account, uh, is, not about likes or about cloud or any of that shit. You know, I think it's about spreading a message. And uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You never and that's why you were like, oh, you come to. I'm like, dude, I I saw the guys on the podcast and like listen to them. Like, bro, I'm not a shooter like that. <laughs> like, I fucking I'm like this hippie fucking savage dude. Like weirdly, weirdly savagely kind of hippie but also like <laughs> no, uh, you, you have kind of stonery kind of hippie kind of savage kind of kind of like guns uh, yeah so but your, your operational uh, you know experience that that puts you right in line with with anybody else that's been on the podcast and and I, I'm being blatantly honest you know I don't do this podcast to make people better shooters I do it to improve their lives and yeah. I just happen to cater to a little bit of the shooting community uh, but I also want to I want to see that change a little bit. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to expand a little bit. And, uh, and so, you know, this podcast is probably one of the most different than any of the other ones, but that's what I was after. That's what I wanted to do nice. because, uh, like I said, man, your resume gives you, uh, you know, the credibility that not everybody else has. And, uh, and I, I like what you're doing at, you know, what we do share is we're trying to, you know, have a positive impact on other people's lives, you know, and that's, to me, that's the only thing that really matters. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I love it, dude. And like I said, I, it's getting being kind of new to the social media space is kind of weird it's like <laughs> all the stuff that's out there like things people say or like people get butthurt over like comments or posts or memes or oh man it's so weird it's, this, is, this is your first podcast right no i've done another podcast oh, before. Okay. Yeah, yeah i was gonna say well wait for that because like a year from now, somebody will be like, hey, you remember uh, on CJ's <laughs> podcast when you said this? And you'll be like, no, yeah, no sure, I don't. I, I, don't, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. dude. I don't know. Well, I think that, like, something I think that people don't acknowledge enough is that, like, you, when you're 30, you're not the same person you were when you were 20. Not even close. You know, when you're, when you're 35, you're not the same person you were when you were 30. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, as people grow through experiences in life and become more mature, um, it's just so different. And I think that sometimes people just don't take in the fact that like, we're, that that's the, that's the case. That like a, what a 20 year old kid said or what you did when you were 20 doesn't, doesn't make you forever. It doesn't, doesn't mean that's the type of person you had or the type of attitude you had. And like, I'm glad that like mental health is becoming like a topic in our country just in general, not even with veterans, but like just kind of in general because there's a lot of people who struggle with mental health issues, but don't really know that it's a mental health issue. Even if it's just anxiety, like sure. even if you're just the dude who like feels like, like if you're, if like, this is probably most soldiers, right? Like you're go to work every day, you fucking crush it, go to PT, you're doing everything you're supposed to do right. But at night or when you're driving to work or whatever, you feel like you're going to get in trouble for something. Mm -hmm. Like you're like, oh shit, like this or that, or you're worried about like, oh, I'm running, 
I'm one of the stages of this range or this is my training event and you're like you're just fucking 100 miles an hour mm-hmm. and people don't acknowledge that that's like that's normal yeah. you know what I mean that's normal shit so I think that CBD for me is another way to like kind of combat some of that mm-hmm. and it's also like people just don't acknowledge the fact in our society enough that when you're younger you're not the same person you're older and as you grow use those experiences and things like that so I, I just see that on social media so much where yeah. it's like people just kind of attacking somebody for their opinion on something when it's like would you hang out with that person like that dude's 23 yeah. Like, I, I don't even know if I know anybody who's 23. Yeah. You know, my daughter's 21, so I might, maybe her boyfriend, I don't know. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> I just, I just look at it kind of like that. Like, who's it coming from? What's going on? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I've noticed with uh, social media is that, like, sometimes people get instant clout, and I hate that shit. Like, I hate the fact that if you're a Navy SEAL or you're a Green Beret and you're done with your time or retired or, get out they're like people give you instant clout or instant credit and it's like like keep doing you like if you're not continuously improving yourself and continuously like improving other people then why are you giving this dude clout like if he has an instagram page because he's a navy seal and he gets on and talks about the fucking riots like that doesn't mean he knows what the fuck he's talking about or yeah. he should get any kind of clout or credit like he could be a piece of shit yeah just because he's a navy seal or just because he's a green beret doesn't mean he gets instant clout and I think that that's like what I try to show is like, yeah, I say like I'm a retired Green Beret, but like on my Instagram, but I also try to do something every day to like, even if it's just like a little something in my story about me running or something. And I get like people being like, dude, you motivate me so much. Like just go run, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. Like that's what I try to do. And I'm weird. Like I, I barely took any pictures the entire time I was in the military. Yeah. I'm almost kind of like, fuck, dude, I should have took more pictures, you know? Like, yeah. I don't have any memories. Yeah. But uh, I'm also kind of real hippie about it, too. Like, when I go to the mountains or do something, I'm just like, I'm not taking pictures of this or videotaping it. I'm just like, yeah. I'm just enjoying it, dude, just being myself. Being in the moment is something that we've has lost. For sure. Us. And, uh, you know, one thing that drives me, drew me to podcasts and still does is most of the visual social medias omit the negative. And it's not oh, for sure. And it's not a malicious thing, right? Like I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody for being narcissistic. My Instagram's the same fucking way. It's a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah, you know, exactly. that's just what you do. Yeah. It's the cool part of my life. What I like about podcasts is it's the ability to throw the negative, the medium, all of that, you know, the future goals, the letdowns, all that stuff, uh, into the audio and the rest of the social medias don't have, you know, that real that ability or that yeah, that sure. section of it. So uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and being transparent and, no, you know, no worries, and touching those negatives. Yeah. I mean, I run my mouth a lot, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we miss like, I think I left out, you know, like 10 years of the army in there, but it's all good. Well, yeah, I, I know we, uh, we kind of put a fork in it right at, uh, Carson, but I was no, just, it's all good. I, I, I didn't do anything cool. No, no, I'm thank you. <laughs> I, I was going to, uh, nothing worth talking about really besides maybe riding snowmobiles and some cool <laughs> shit like that, but I don't know. Let's uh, let's do a part two then. Let's uh, let's do, let's do a now. second part. Um, you're doing some cool stuff with uh, Black Rifle Coffee too, is that right? Yeah. So the, basically, that stuff is all through Clandestine Media Group. Okay. Um, they try to use uh, soft guys as their you know their models or their kind of their action, their, their who's in front of the camera. Uh-huh. Uh, so I just got opportunity um, where a lot of the shoots, you know, they were contracted to do work for Black Rifle. So that was really cool. I got a chance to like just get out and 
be me, man, just shredding a snowmobile and took <laughs> pictures of me and yeah. uh, video and stuff, and which was really fun. And like I said, it it, it feels like being on an ODA again. That was, that's that's like a cool experience, you know. I get to play with guns and toys and be around rad dudes, and yeah. and then all of a sudden, you know, I see my seeing myself on like I'm all over like Mossberg and like Instagram, <laughs> like all their Instagrams, like Mossberg yeah. and uh, Black Rifle Coffee, um, bunch of I'm trying to think what other stuff I'm on. Um, Maxim Defense, like all kind of new guns and new stuff that's out, which is, which is super cool. Dude, you know? I know dudes that probably give their pinky to be tagged in those Instagram <laughs> accounts. <laughs> yeah, and I mean sometimes they tag me, sometimes they don't. Yeah. I don't think I'm tagged on like any of the big stuff. Um, Black Rifle Coffee definitely doesn't uh, tag me, um, which I don't. You know, I'm not trying to look for the yeah. tag or whatever. Which, and then every now and then, you know, someone will tag me. And I'm like, oh shit, thanks guys, it's <laughs> super cool. Um, I think it helps give some credibility to um like we were talking about before we got on um it's like everyone's a critic on the internet right like everyone's a pro everyone it's especially if it's a picture or a video like just a just a snippet like you don't see like the before the after like this the beginning of the story the end of the story um why that person's doing what they're using that certain tactic or that pistol drill or whatever they're doing right so everybody wants to be an expert everybody's a critic so I think that um, sometimes they'll tag me because they know that uh, the way I feel anyway is not only maybe they're trying to help me, you know, maybe they're like, hey, we'll tag him on Instagram because he's a you know, cool guy. Uh, but I also think it helps give them credit, credibility. You know, if you're a Mossberg and you tag me using your shotgun, like I think that that gives and the way I'm holding it, or like if I'm holding it at a, you know, at the angle I'm holding it at against the door, it gives them credibility to be like, oh, this guy, you know, and if they tag me and someone looked at that gun and they're like, oh, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to do, you know, interior door breaches with a shotgun. Um, so I think that those kind of things or for like, you know, um, you know, black rifle, whatever. They're like, oh, they're using veterans still they're in all their production and things like that. So I think it helps give some credibility. I think that's what makes clandestine media company really cool is that they're using veterans and they're using guys who know what they're doing helps give them some street cred. It helps the ease of functionality and weapon systems and it makes it look correct. Um, so if they're trying to sell to the government or something and they want to show how this radio, you know, headset works or whatever, it's from guys who have operational experience and would use it or know how to use it. Okay. So I think that's, a, that's like a, a cool aspect of, of yeah, it. That definitely is. I know I'm promising a lot of tags in the show notes, but I'll throw them in there no, too. Clandestine. Oh yeah, they're sick, dude. Because I mean, a lot of times people listen, they want to check out these oh, know, yeah, different things, sure. so they'll be in there too. Yeah, I had, um, I think, what which one was, some of the Black Rifle stuff that came out when we did the winter shoot. And, uh, Black Rifle, some people are commenting, and I stopped because I want to be like a troll, but they were like, oh, I bet, they were like, is that damn Brazilian? It was like, oh, I bet that's damn Brazilian. And I was like, and I just, I like hit him, I was like, no, Black Rifle uses real operators. And I, and I kept like kind of going, and I was like, let me stop, because like, I don't want the fucking media dude from Black Rifle to be like, this fucking guy's a tool. And I was just probably high and just being funny, like I always am, talking a lot of shit. Um, so, and that's kind of one of my things. I always pride myself on not being like super serious and just being like, kind of roll with it and, and having fun with everything. So most people that actually have operational experience are like that too. In yeah. my experience, they're not super high strung or, or super serious Yeah. for the most part. But uh, I, I know you got to pick up your daughter and so I don't want to hold you up too much. And uh, my man over there is probably <laughs> tired of hanging out. 
Uh, but but thanks a million, man, for coming yeah, no on, telling your story. And like, I'm dead serious. I want to uh, yeah, cover man, the rest of that. I love it. Like I said, anything I can do, um, you know, to try to help other people out and get into. I feel like I'm such in such an awesome headspace, and and like in such a great opportunity. And so many people have helped me be there that I want to continue to do fundraisers. I want to continue to talk as much as I can about CBD, about helping people, um, about, you know, um, I don't want to pitch the coaching stuff too much because I don't want people to think I'm, tr- I'm trying to get money out of it, which I am in a way, but I'm also... Yeah, you don't, you don't got to justify so or defend like, feeding your family. Man. No, no, like but at the same time, I, I think like, and my, the way I look at it is like, I'm just in such a good headspace and such a good place in my life and retired at the right time um just so blessed that i, I want to share that and i want to if, if it's anything small out of my life that i'm doing that can that someone else can adopt and do as well mm-hmm. then then i want them to to be able to do that you know so um i made plenty of mistakes with everything from women to money to drugs to whatever <laughs> you call it name it man like i i've no no drugs at all i'm just playing uh i only smoke marijuana i actually <laughs> never i do want to do mushrooms though um I know there's a lot of like cool psychedelic dude. Joe Rogan's always there. preaching about that stuff. I know, that I have, stuff. and I have a buddy who's like <laughs> did it, and he's really big, and you know helped him uh, uh, PTSD. Why just crazy? But uh, but anyway, no, I, no drugs. But being funny, but uh, yeah, for sure, I made so many mistakes, man. When it comes to fitness and training, or you know career moves, and you know if I could have done it all again, you know like I wouldn't have underestimated myself for so long, or. Maybe I would have had a different mentor or kicking the butt somewhere different in my career. But, um, yeah, I'm open book, man. And if anybody, if I, anything I can say or do to help people, that's some about. And I, I think that especially what's going on in our country right now and the divisiveness that is portrayed on, you know, the media, the Internet, just in general. It's like to me, that's not my that's not my army, man. That's not my that's not my America. And yeah. I and I want people to you know, to understand that. And I think that, um, anything I can do, any platform I can be on or do something, you know, you know, you and I probably approach it the same way. You know, I pay attention to what's happening around me, you know, on my street with my friends and the world really hasn't changed that much. And so I always think back to my grandpa telling me to believe, uh, you know, none of what you hear and half of what you see. And and I think more conversations like this, more attitudes like yours, and that's how we get through this. That's how we, you know, overcome, uh, these hills that are supposed hills, I don't know how much of an issue they really are. Uh, the media makes it seem like they are, but uh, you know your approach and, and your attitude towards it, and that's what we need. Yeah, for sure, man. I appreciate it, dude. Yeah, thanks again, man. Thanks for being on. Uh, I'm dead serious about that part, too. Maybe yeah. I'll make Kobe come be on it with you or <laughs> we something. Should, but, uh, Kobe a collab uh, after his big race. <laughs> but uh, for everybody that tuned into this uh, episode, I'm your host, CJ Boxrude, and this is Empty Brass.